kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Ladies and gentlemen, it's Monday. It's a little bit after six o'clock. Welcome to another edition of the Auntie Nanny podcast. Um, with me this evening is the lovely and vivacious Miss Jeannie Kay. How are you today, Miss Jeannie? I am here. How are you, Jen? I am here. I am also here. <laughs> um, and the best producer money can't buy, Barry. How are you today, Barry? Hold on. Okay. <laughs> um I sure got you are. No, I'm sure I you got, got, I'm sure you I'm sure you got then I get Jan. <laughs> I was going to say I believe there is a band called that too and Yeah. Really... He's become like a phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean something about that Take Me to Church song, I guess people are, you know, in love with it. I don't quite get it, but whatever. Um so Jeannie got something I didn't. What didn't I understand here? It was a Game of Thrones reference. Ah, okay. There's a character in it. All he says is Holdor. That's his name. No, you didn't see the latest episode, Barry. He gets to talk. No, no, I did see it. And you're, I, I just didn't want to do spoilers, which you've just done. <laughs> it's not a spoiler if it was like last Thursday. You know, I've pretty much stopped watching TV altogether. I've just been listening to podcasts, but like weird horror podcasts. I've been listening to something called Tannis, which is pretty good. I've been listening to the Black Tapes podcast. Also, tremendously good stuff. If you like, um, and if you like audiobooks, they're really good. And they're free, so I'm all for that. You're not watching TV, but Game of Thrones is back. Mm -hmm. Second half of the Lucifer series is back as well for the last couple of weeks I mean jeez I mean come on John I need something to do when I go on vacation <laughs> so like that's that's binge watching time for me that's where I sit there and I watch and I get all like slack jawed and stupid it's a fun time actually <laughs> I just do nothing but watch TV like I, I watch just tons of episodes of stuff that's what well, I do on vacation. apparently there's going to be a dread TV series as well I I saw that. That looks kind of interesting. Yeah. It does. I'm kind of surprised they never did a Punisher series, actually. 
Um, there were attempts at it, but since the films kept failing so drastically, uh... yeah, <laughs> I don't know. That kind of epic, episodic violence seems like it would be a win. Yeah, Punisher might have been too much violence, even for American TV, though. Yeah, but you know, because yeah, the comic's brutal. <laughs> well, yes, the comic is brutal. That's true. And it so. doesn't have the comedy in it that Deadpool's got. So yeah. Oh, Deadpool. So funny. I, I think I've watched it four or five times since it came out on DVD. Like, have you yeah. watched uh, Mr... Was it Mr. Nice Guy? Mm -mm. No. That's not it. I'm getting the name wrong. Hang on. It's the the latest Sam Rockwell film. Mm. Uh, no. no. Oh, what's the name of it? It's actually incredibly entertaining. He's a crazy... Mr. Wright, that's it. Okay. Him and Anna Kendrick. Kedrick. Um, so, okay. yeah. Very, very funny. And lots of Sam Rockwell being weird and dancing. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Jeannie, what have you been doing? I know last week you went to softball. Um, well, yeah, and she had another game tonight. I was supposed to be babysitting my grandson. Uncle Bernie was going to help. Because the weather right. is fucking abysmal. It is cold and rainy and just shitty weather um but her game got canceled so uncle bernie is off the hook um, but i i i am very thankful that my kids got my grandkids a puppy i saw some of the puppy pictures yes I, I saw like one of them oh ruger ruger thinks she is the next best thing since sliced bread and he is so gentle with her and plays with her and he just now when the kids show up Ruger grabs the puppy's favorite toy and goes trotting out there to the door and if they don't have her he hangs his head and walks back in the living room like ah fucking day's over with now <laughs> <laughs> it's hysterical so yeah so Paul has given me permission that um, I can get another dog when we go to Tennessee as long as it's a puppy that's going to grow oh, up nice yeah another no pocket dog <laughs> right, another dog that you name? Yes, and I will name it. <laughs> Seems like a good choice. Um, I, I just wanted to let people know we've moved the Casa update to quarter past six tonight. So if that's what you're listening for, hang on for another seven minutes and we'll bring on Mr. Alex, Mr. Fantastic. Tell us all about the wonderful things that have been going on in the in the vaping verse, I guess, of, of advocacy. I get fun. to see anything that looks wonderful lately, Jan. Uh, I don't know. The report from the UK looked pretty positive to me. Oh, definitely. Yeah. The, the ants are shitting themselves over it. Oh, yeah. But, and I mean, and they're already putting the same spin on it that they do everything else. Well, it's kind of hard to do because that report is so freaking influential. Especially, yeah, um, you have to yeah. realize what it did in 1962. You know, if history repeats, you know, the government's not just going to be able to blindly go along and do what they've been doing without hearing about it from scientists, not just us, not just industry, not just vapors. They're going it's, to hear about it from actual scientists. This, it's more important than the just scientists thing. This is doctors. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> actual medical doctors. Mm -hmm. So, exactly. yeah. Much harder to brush off. Much the, harder the to sweep under been, the rug. I mean, the ants yeah. have been trying, but lots of our supporters who are doctors have been pointing out 
yeah, their opinion matters more because they actually know what they're talking about. They don't just look at statistics. Because um, most of the aunties, as we know, are epidemiologists. Mm. And they're ba basically just playing with numbers. They're not looking at patients. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not. And that is a big difference. Okay. Um, so I guess there's that. Everybody's talked about what their entertainment is. Did anybody... Uh, Happen to see, you saw it, Barry. I, I showed it to you. Um, Jeannie, I stuck it in your Skype. I said, it, one in a punchline. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I so like the punchline. Craigslist. Craigslist is a gold mine of wonderful things. But this, this one is weird. Particular. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of great. It's kind of great. So I thought I would read that, uh, both of them, both the uh, Craigslist ads, so that uh, everybody can get a a understanding of what's going on so ucsf the university of california at san francisco which is stanton glance's wonderful group was advertising for help and i'll read that ad to you and then i will read the response okay um paid volunteers for e-cigarette and tobacco study mission district compensation $2,030. Yeah. Do you use an e-cigarette in addition to a traditional tobacco cigarette? We know that companies have been advertising e-cigarettes as a better than tobacco cigarettes. Is it true? We want to find out the pros and cons of e-cigarettes. We want to know the different things that happen to your body when you smoke e-cigarettes versus when you smoke a tobacco cigarette. We're looking for paid volunteers to help us find out more about e-cigarettes. The study involves two visits to the UCSF Tobacco Research Center, eight outpatient days at home, and eight days at San Francisco General Hospital. You will be compensated up to twenty. Oh, I'm sorry, two thousand three hundred dollars for your time. Yeah, two thousand thirty dollars for your time. If you're interested, please call us at show contact info or email us at show contact info. Please leave your name, spell it, phone number, uh, number of cigarettes smoked per day, brand name of cigarettes, including full flare or lights, brand of e-cigarettes, and the best time to reach you. That's. Can, can I read the response? Go ahead. Read the punchline. <laughs> Warning. RE, e-cigarette, and tobacco study. By Inner Sunset slash UCSF. This is a warning for all of those who read a recent post about a study on tobacco and e-cigarettes at UCSF. I responded to the ad. I was asked to call a man named Stan. I was given an address of where to show up. When I showed up, I was told that the payment was actually $20.30, not $2,000 and not $2,030. Then the guy asked me to help him fix his car. He said something about being a mechanical engineer. Weird guy. I didn't even get the $20.30. I just left. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, excellent response. I thought it was kind of great. Of course, the original advert begs the question: Yeah, wh why didn't they do that four years ago when they were being started being all negative? It's only now they want to look at the differences. <laughs> it's uh, like, I, I don't. Yeah, bit late. Maybe they should do a study. Yeah. Huh. Uh, well, yeah. Um, 
I, I, hi Ed, hi Thomas. Uh, I guess you could sign up. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know that. I think. Stand. I mean, if it was a correct advert, yeah, they'll have been inundated with vapors. Hmm. Well, because there's an awful uh, lot of them in California. And yeah, I bet an yeah. awful lot of them look at Craigslist. Yeah, you ask the vendors in Southern California, and they're the entire market. Yep. And they're not, but they think yeah. they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it, it, their, their study would go well. Um, okay. Because let's face I, it, yeah, yeah, they're going to discount anyone who is in any way positive about e-cigarettes. They will oh. find some way to flip the information to suit their playbook. Well, yeah. I mean, and what that's going to tell you is they have to have been, especially UCSF, has to have been doing that with tobacco for a really long time. You know, they have to. If they're doing it to us, it's really nothing new, right? Yeah. There's nothing new under the sun. Well, that, that, that'll that be the, the study that Mr. Glantz got some funding money for last year. Mm. You know, part of the million or whatever that UCSF got. It'll yeah. have been to, for, to do this study. As I say, four years or so late. Uh, <laughs> uh, why let that get in the way of a good show? Preconceived <laughs> results. Because um, <laughs> let's face it, they probably already know what the results are. Uh, it oh. is UCSF. They're yeah. almost as good at fixing results as the University of Sheffield. <laughs> John might know what I'm on about with that. Uh, I do actually. Yeah, if you follow Clive Bates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly. <sighs> okay, uh, it's six fourteen. So okay, I shall try and find Alex. Try to gather Mr. Clark. Good evening, Alex. Good evening. <clears throat> Good evening and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 5-2-2016. Hi, Alex. What's new and exciting this week? It's been a while. It has. <laughs> it has. It's been two weeks. Last week, uh, I didn't have anybody who could produce a decent quality show. I was on another show on Monday night and it sounded like I was in a wind tunnel. So you definitely didn't want me bringing you on Monday night. We would have both sounded like we were going to be swept away in a hurricane. So nice. at least at least the sound quality's better tonight. <laughs> I'll take it. So I I don't know where we left off. I, I guess I, I I I don't know what uh, I haven't had a chance to check and see. I, we, we didn't put anything out last week, right? Right. Okay. Um. So I'm kind of reaching into the wayback machine here. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we've talked at all, really, about the Cole Bishop Amendment. Not. Do you remember that? At yeah, all? I do remember that. I know. I think I discussed it a little the week I did the three minute, three and a half minute update. <laughs> but I didn't really go into detail. Well, so. it's yeah. It certainly deserves a little bit more uh, detail and um, maybe a little bit of an update in terms of next steps. Um, so, for those that don't know, the Cole Bishop Amendment was uh, language that was added to an agriculture agriculture appropriations Racial. bill, um, which will be part of the overall kind of U.S. budget bill 
um, much like what we saw last year uh, where, you know, this thing kind of came down to the wire in late December. Um, mm -hmm. There was actually lots of people, um, lots of media types and policy wonks kind of hanging out on Twitter at two o'clock in the morning waiting to get their hands on a copy of the final budget bill to right. see, um, you know, what riders made it in and, and so on. And at that time, we actually knew that, that you know, e-cigarettes were not going to be a part of it, um, but it was still, it was actually kind of fun to sit there and it's like waiting for Santa Claus to, you know, land on your roof. It was, I don't know if it'll be the same feeling this year, but uh, I thought that was interesting. Um, so anyway, th this will likely drag out until the end of the year. Um, and uh, yeah. This, however, is remarkably different language than what we saw last year. Um, there are more, there's more bits and pieces to it. And um, this is not simply a matter of changing the predicate date. Uh, so we're monitoring this uh, as it goes through the process. And there's a couple of things to point out. Um, number one, this is language that's going in a budget bill. That means we'll be right back here next year negotiating similar language to go into the budget bill. Um, this does not make a permanent change to the, uh, the statute. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, this is sort of, uh, I like to think of this as sort of getting our foot in the door, um, and uh, which is a good thing. Uh, you know, if, if this language stays in, uh, it means that we've managed to win some hearts and minds in, in Congress. Um, so that, that is sort of, sort of the point to this. Um, and without going too deeply into the, the, you know, the nitty gritty of the language, um, there, it, it should be clear to some people that concessions were made. Um, concessions were made in order to make this a bipartisan bill. Right. That um, that Democrats and Republicans could both support, um, but as far as Kasai is concerned, um, you know we. I'll just leave it at we're we're monitoring the situation. I, I, I was asked about this more than once, like in the past week or so, and all I've told people is is you can get a copy of this and and read it for yourself. It's, it's not yeah. really that hard to read. And um, I think there's some, some language in there that's a little um, concerning. But yeah, I, and... Yeah, go ahead. And, and again, you know, nothing about this is set in stone. Um, this, this, this type of maneuver does not actually change the statute. This is simply something, you know, if you read the language, it's, you know, along the lines of, it, well, I mean, it literally is, no funds will be made made available for, uh, just to paraphrase, you know, the FDA to uh, enforce the 2007 uh, predicate date, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and that's that. This yeah. is still negotiable uh, next year. Mm -hmm. uh, there is still hopefully a vehicle for kind of a clean, uh, you know, eventually. I think our you know, goal here is uh, that we 
we get some sort of standalone legislation that just officially changes the, the statute, mm -hmm. changes the predicate date, yes. that would be ideal. Um, but we don't live in a vacuum and I don't ride a unicorn to work, so uh, <laughs> we have to be somewhat realistic about the process. <clears throat> um, so that's that. Um, I, I will say, you know, there there is uh, there are there's chatter out there saying that HR twenty fifty eight is is no longer a viable option. Um, and I will return to my earlier statement that I made just a matter of seconds ago, saying that <clears throat> um, ideally, at some point, we want some standalone legislation to change the statute. So mm -hmm. something like HR twenty fifty eight is is our goal. Right. Um, and you know. I don't know how much I'm actually speaking on behalf of CASA for this, but personally, I'm not willing to accept that HR 2058 or something like it is dead in the water. Mm -hmm. um, there are a couple of things that we accomplish by uh, continuing to urge people to write their congressmen and, and urge them to co-sponsor HR 2058, mm -hmm. namely keeping the conversation alive. and. Um, continuing to put this issue in front of lawmakers, um, so they, they realize that that we're you know we're very passionate about this, and we really do want some substantive changes to the statute. Okay. Um, so uh, that's that, and uh, I, I think well, that's not that that uh, the uh, the next steps for this bill um, are sort of. I think we're already through with the markup period. I could be wrong about that. Um, that's basically just some uh, minor changes to the language, nothing substantive. It probably won't change much from how it's written now. Um, and then uh, the real goal here is going to be to keep it in the budget bill. Uh, there will be opportunities coming up, I believe, in June where um, uh, you know the, there's an opportunity for that language to be removed. So um, there's still more, more work to be done, and um, you know at least for now, one of our goals for this year is to keep that language in uh, to some extent, um, despite whatever issues we might have with the legislation. Um, it does uh, advocate for a change in the predicate date, and uh, that's something that we support. So. Um, that's the straight dope on the Cole Bishop Amendment. Okay. <clears throat> uh, the other bit of uh, news is if you live in Indiana's 9th Congressional District, you're looking at a pretty important race. Um, Indiana's Attorney General is running for that seat. Uh, is it Greg Zeller? Um, he is kind of outspoken anti-vaping. Um, and uh, I think legally I'm sort of bound to just tell you that much. Um, there are six or seven candidates in the field and uh, at least, well, at least two of them have uh, either made public statements against vapor products or have a voting record against the vaping industry in Indiana. Um, recently, over the weekend, the mm -hmm. kind of candidate questionnaire that we sent out, um, uh, a couple people heard back from Trey Hollingsworth III, 
right. um, and he basically sent a message back to them and we were able to uh, update our uh, uh, voter guide with his statement um, that was actually uh, somewhat supportive of the vapor industry and, and access to vapor products. So um, if you live in Indiana's 9th District, please check out our, our blog. We have the, uh, um, the voter guide posted on our blog under Indiana. If you just go to the calls to action by state, you can click on Indiana and it should be at the top of the list there. Uh, we'll give you a rundown of you know candidate positions. Um, but again, and this is something that people should be, this is sort of applicable to the rest of the country. Um, we are working on a project to get more, to get a better understanding of candidates' positions on this issue. Um, but as it stands now, we just really don't have a whole lot of data. Um, and at the state level, um, you know, you have several states who have seen legislation that would impact vapor products. Um, and we like to think that we can kind of gauge someone's position based on their vote on a particular bill. Right. Uh, but this doesn't really tell the whole story. They may have had to vote a certain way for political reasons, uh, but you know, at, at the core, you know, they really believe that, that there's a different way to regulate these products or there's something more appropriate. Um, so it's just going on voting record alone is not really the best way to determine someone's stance on these products. Um, so, uh, you know, hopefully soon, I, I'm, I've never done anything like this before, so I'm not exactly sure with the amount of work that's actually involved in, in doing kind of a, a mail campaign to candidates. Right. Um, but uh, hopefully soon we will be able to produce, uh, you know, a questionnaire and, and, and hopefully they will uh, perk up and pay attention and actually respond. Um, so we'll see uh, how that goes. But uh, we are working to be able to provide voters with some information about, you know, how candidates feel about this issue. Um, the other thing, there's two things going on starting tomorrow uh, that I'll be involved in. Um, <clears throat> tomorrow afternoon, I will be in Providence, Rhode Island. There oh, is wow. a uh, the House Committee on Finance is holding a hearing on uh, Tobacco 21 legislation. Uh, we <laughs> just put out a call to action for that uh, this morning, yes. actually more around lunchtime. Uh, and uh, that is SB 7737. Uh, just straightforward, raise the age to purchase vapor products and tobacco products to 21. Um, and uh, no grandfather provision, just, uh, yeah. And uh, it, it's kind of ironic, actually, that uh, one of the things I noticed in reading the legislation, in, in the legislative intent section, they actually quoted the Institutes of Medicine review of Tobacco 21 policy and uh, I, I'm always, I think most of us, I think are kind of curious how different organizations and legislative bodies sort of twist information to suit their needs. Um, and the way that they present it actually kind of sounds like we've collected data on, on this policy and this is what we can expect thousands of people, uh, you know, 
stopping smoking and thousands of people avoiding certain diseases and, and so on. Um, it's not actually what the institutes of medicine looked into. They ran uh, a couple of scenarios through com some computer modeling and came up with an estimate of uh, 3 million more smokers, well, 3, mo 3 million more people not smoking uh, as a result of this policy, um, as opposed to you know just maintaining the status quo uh, in something like 45 years, um, which you know, arguably electronic cigarettes will be able to achieve something like that within the next five uh, or less. I think originally I had said two years, but I think five is probably a more uh, palatable number to throw out there. Um, so uh, I've been spending the past two days kind of refining my testimony. I only, I only have like three to five minutes to speak, so I can't really get too deeply into the science. Um, so uh, Julie and Greg have been helping me with uh, putting together some very detailed written testimony that we'll be submitting tomorrow. Um, so that is at uh, between 4 and 4.30 tomorrow. Um, the hearing room, I believe, is in the basement. Uh, it is room 35. Uh, and apparently, because it's in the basement, it is the one of the coldest committee hearing rooms in the Capitol. Uh, I believe someone had said they have actually spent uh, committee hearings in that room wearing winter coats. Um, so that could be an adventure, um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I know that there's some very passionate advocates in Rhode Island and I'm looking forward to meeting them and uh, standing side by side uh, in opposition to this bill. Um, the other thing that's happening on Wednesday, um, the New York Safada chapter is having a uh, lobby day in Albany right. and I will be joining them for that much like what I did in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the situation is a bit different in New York. You know, there's no like one bill that's headed straight for the governor's desk or anything like that. Um, but there is a rather large list of, of bills. Uh, there's typically a lot of legislation proposed in New York every year. Um, so, uh, again, I have a lot, I have a lot of work to do for the rest of the night. Um, <laughs> yeah, you do. Actually. Um, yeah, before I drive to Rhode Island tomorrow. Um, but, uh, yeah, a really interesting couple of days coming up and, uh, I'll be happy to have some updates at the beginning of next week. Um, yeah. I managed to sit here and talk for 15 minutes really without bringing up the Royal College of Physicians report. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of waiting for that. <laughs> um, what, what an amazing tool that the UK has given us. Uh, I intend to use this at every opportunity uh, to advocate for protecting our access to vapor products and uh, promoting accurate information about the products. Um, I actually, I don't know if you're following kind of the Twitter back and forth between the Twitter uh, back and forth, the letters and the times. Yes. Oh, what, no, I was actually, I was just talking about, um, I, I was going to mention, uh, this little town in, in Georgia, just outside of Atlanta, okay. um, Clarkston, Georgia. Uh, it's, it's roughly 7,000 people. It's really not a big place. Uh, but their their young tech savvy mayor, uh, self 
described progressive, um, you know, advocating for decriminalizing marijuana and et cetera, et cetera, um, is uh, they're I guess they're going to have a public hearing tomorrow about a, an indoor vaping ban. Um, and I was actually able to use the Royal College of Physicians report to drive home the point that uh, even they are stating that uh, state regulations that prohibit the use of vapor products in public spaces and workspaces, workplaces, uh, would be inappropriate at this time. Um, so it's, it's actually very interesting to see someone else kind of cherry picking the the RCP report to suit their agenda um, and and doing a very very poor job of it um, so that that'll be actually a very interesting to, thing to watch going forward is some of the the, the activist types that you find on social media um, cherry picking the RCP report to to suit their agenda and and, and doing it in, in very strange ways um, <laughs> And, uh, and I, I, I have not actually sat down and read all 200 pages of the report yet. Um, but uh, I can tell you, if, if you do have to get into a, a Twitter war with somebody over this report, um, it's very well organized, which I would, ex <laughs> I would expect that from the oldest professional organization on the planet. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, an, it's an excellent piece of, you know, regulatory review and scientific review and um and i i uh I'm, I'm really looking forward to incorporating some of the points from from that report into our legislative correspondence going forward um and i really i really hope that uh you know uh, the, for those that don't know the royal college of physicians released their report on smoking and health in 1962 which was two years before the U.S. Surgeon General released mm -hmm. his report, um, so it, it would be nice to see history kind of repeat itself. Mm -hmm. And um, it, I mean, if if the U.S. Surgeon General could get on board with something like this, that would be that's a total game changer. Um, so uh, I, I think it's all of our sincere hope that that the U.S. officials are paying very close attention to this and and taking it to heart. Um, and yeah, I just, you know, everybody out there share the hell out of it. It's great. It's good stuff. That is good stuff right there. Yeah. So, so is that it for this evening, Alex? I'm I think so. Okay. I, I'm, I'm sure I forgot something, but, uh, you know, um, um, <laughs> whatever. We'll, we'll pick it up next week. We absolutely will. Um, have a nice drive to Providence. I'm, I'm kind of envious. I went to high school there, so. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. I remember you were originally from the Northeast. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Is I, there uh, like? Am I supposed to get like some pizza somewhere in Rhode Island or? Um, if you get to go to if College Hill is anything like I remember, that place was awesome. There was this little tiny, teeny tiny shack of a restaurant right on the Brown University grounds, that had the all the very best food you could eat, very cheap. Um, you would leave College Hill and just walk past Brown University and like maybe a block down from there is this little restaurant called Rosie's and right. it has the best food I've ever eaten. I miss it. It's good stuff.
Well, I'll have to seek it out. I'm going to need to, I'm sure I'm going to need to fuel up before I head to Albany tomorrow night. So, um, <laughs> my God. So I got you on your like one night home. I'll be home on Thursday. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, your wife is a very patient person. Yep. That's true. It, yeah, it is true. Uh, so thank you for everything you do for us and thank Eve for her patience. I will. And thank okay. you. Have a great night. See you next week. See ya. Okay. Are we done recording? Yes, we are done. Okay. All right. So that was the advocacy moments. Uh, Jeannie, do you want to discuss anything that you saw today on video? I'm actually working on my second listen. Okay. Um, I There's a lot of really good information, and I grabbed the link because mm -hmm. people, yeah. and I'll even tell people who to search for on okay. freaking YouTube so that they can listen to this. And I don't know how to pronounce Brian's last name. That's okay. I, I could hardly pronounce Velasquez. Very, <laughs> um, how do you pronounce that? Uh, O-J-T-I-K. Um, Fulchik? Or Fulchik? I have no idea. I, I don't know. But it's, and then it's, it's Vicky from Signot. So, <laughs> um, and these. It's called the Vaping Wars. Shortage. Go I'm ahead. sorry. No, no, I was saying the video is called The Vaping Wars. Oh, yeah. Um, the Vaping Wars. And it is at the Heritage Foundation. And they give their opinions and their views on a lot of what is going on. And, and I really like that Brian started out by saying, you know, we're calling this a war. And, you know, maybe it's inappropriate use of the word war. But that is exactly what's going on right now um, mm -hmm. and who stands to gain and who stands to lose um, the, the the coal amendment um, was brought up um, coal bishop it wasn't all coal bishop added his two cents but, um, that's that's brought up um, I don't want to influence anybody's views on what they think of this thing but I'm telling you, if you guys listen to podcasts, um, you should download this thing and at least listen to it in your car while you're doing some stuff and you have some time to think. It is an hour and 45 minutes long, but it is so worth an hour and 45 minutes of your time. Uh, Very and I both watched it live, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was, it, let me say there were portions of it that were very surprising. The Q and A session is just fantastic mm -hmm. at the end as well. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, yeah. that's you, you learn a lot there. Listen, you will learn a great deal of things, um, a lot of which you are going to think you knew, but you didn't know them this way. Yeah, perfect. That was perfect. So, Costello, you're really going to go for that USCF tobacco research study? <laughs> You're going to spend eight days and seven nights with Stanton Glantz. I want to know which one comes out alive. Oh, I don't know. 
Um, so R- remember, the, remember the shovel and tarps. Oh, I mean, <laughs> no, I didn't say that. No. Oh boy, I was you need an this. awful lot of tarps. I was going to say, you know, don't forget the lime. Um, but I didn't mean that. Um, also, yeah. forget the shovel. You might need an earth mover. <laughs> I was gonna, yeah. <laughs> Very true. You actually might need an earth mover. Um, I'm. <laughs> I'm assuming people aren't tuning into this for all the the uh, news anymore. <laughs> uh, okay, so I, I said I was going to cover some things in in my show bumper, which I I, sh- I I should actually probably record one of those someday. Show bumper. Um, so I, I'm going to start with the less fun part of Auntie Nanny. Here's the news. Scientists looking to fix the many problems with forensic evidence from the can you fix the people performing tests department. Everything everyone saw in cop shows as evidence linking people to crimes, the hair left on someone's clothing, the tire tracks leading out to the road, the shell casings at the scene, etc. is all proving to be about as factual as the shows themselves. While much of it is not exactly junk science, much of it has limited worth. What appears to indicate guilt contains enough of a margin of error that it could very easily prove otherwise. Science Magazine is taking a look at the standbys of forensic science and what's being done to ensure better presentations of evidence in the future. On a September afternoon in 2000, a man named Richard Green was shot and wounded in his neighborhood south of Boston. About a year later, police found a loaded pistol in the yard of a nearby house. A detective with the Boston Police Department fired the gun multiple times in a lab and compared the minute grooves and scratches that the firing pin in the interior of the gun left on the cartridge casings with those discovered on casings found at the crime scene. They matched, he would later say in a pretrial hearing, to the exclusion of every other firearm in the world, quote, end quote. So how could the detective be sure the shots hadn't been fired from another gun? Go ahead, Jeannie. That's an impossible distinction to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the naked eye, absolutely. You can say, you can you can raise the odds of probability, but you're not going to get 100% match. Um, the short answer, if you ask any statistician, is that he couldn't. There was some unknown chance that a different gun struck a similar pattern, but for decades, forensic examiners have sometimes claimed in court that close but not identical ballistic markings could conclusively link evidence to a suspect, and judges and juries have trusted their expertise. Examiners have made similar statements for other forms of so-called pattern evidence, such as fingerprints, shoe prints, tire tracks, and bite marks. Six years ago, the National Academy of Sciences found these forensic standbys had a much larger margin of error than was portrayed in the court by detectives and expert witnesses. It was recommended the margin of error be delivered along with the testimony to head off future verdicts based on faulty evidence. To date, not much has changed. While actual junk science, like bite marks, has largely been discarded by prosecutors, the others remain, even as their reliability has been constantly questioned. The FBI loved hair analysis, right up to the point that it determined witnesses had overstated the test results 90% of the time in the two decades prior to 2000. Even fingerprints, which have long been considered unassailable because of their supposed uniqueness, aren't much better. Some of it has to do with the presumption that every fingerprint is so unique, even a partial print can eliminate suspects. The rest of its issues lie with those with matching those prints. 
One study of 169 fingerprint examiners found 7.5% false negatives, in which examiners concluded that two prints from the same person came from different people, and 0.1% false positives, where two prints were incorrectly said to be from the same source. While some of the examiners were retested on some of the same prints after seven months, they repeated only about 90% of their exclusions and 89% of their individualizations. The NIST has given $20 million to the Center for Statistics and Applications and Forensic Evidence to come up with a better way to present this sort of evidence, one that clearly accounts for the uncertainties in the results process. C-SAFE is still trying to figure out how to present this as a number slash rating, but that might not be the only problem. The other issue is that juries and judges might not find specifics about forensics reliability to pay much of a part in deciding guilt or innocence. In a 2013 study, for instance, online participants had to rate the likelihood of a defendant's guilt in a hypothetical robbery based on different kinds of testimony from a fingerprint examiner. It didn't seem to matter whether they were told a print at the scene matched or was individualized to the defendant, or whether the examiner offered further justification. The chance of an error is so remote that it is considered to be a practical impossibility. <laughs> for example, in all those cases, jurors related the likelihood of guilt at a 4.5 on a 7-point scale. As a lawyer, I would have thought the specific wording would have mattered more than it did, a man named Garrett said. But if subjects were told that the print could have come from someone else, they seemed to discount the fingerprint evidence altogether. The other part of the problem is the people who perform these tests. Multiple incidents where evidence was falsified or not properly tested have been covered. Uh, the evidence is only as good as the process, and if steps are skipped because of sloppiness or laziness, the evidence credibility becomes highly questionable, not just for the specific instance where the results were faked, but for every person this test has touched. There's no possible way to eliminate honest errors, much less prevent anyone from falsifying results. In both cases, the problems are caught after the damage has been done. Humans are the most unpredictable part of the chain of evidence, but also an irreplaceable part. CSAFE will be working with forensics labs to create best practices but it can do nothing to prevent the lazy and or incompetent from completely ignoring the proper steps. Oh, boy. Thoughts? Well, yeah, I've known for a long time that, yeah, forensic evidence, it's, it is an art. It is not a science. Right. And good forensics guys will tell you that. Um, one problem they have is data sets, mm -hmm. right? So for a fingerprint, you choose the number of matching points you want before comparison makes matches. And right. in different, jurisdri different jurisdictions, mm -hmm. they pick different numbers. So for a, I don't know the exact numbers, but say they're looking at fingerprints in New York. Mm -hmm. They're looking for 12 points on the fingerprint to match. But you go next door to New Jersey, and they want 17 points to match before they say it's a match print. Right. It's the same in when they, the infamous DNA testing. It's the same in that. Um, it depends on how closely you look at the data and how close you look for the match. And, as said in this, there's human error. Yes. Somebody can misidentify a matching point. Uh, there's a case in the UK where... There was a policewoman working in the forensic lab. Her career was ruined because they said she'd um, 
contaminated samples, thus ruining a case and all this kind of stuff. And sh it was something like six years in court and mm -hmm. until eventually it was proved that, no, it wasn't her. <laughs> you know, it wasn't her fault that their evidence got messed up. The evidence was just messed up. <laughs> um, and didn't we, didn't we cover a story a little while ago about the FBI? Um, and hair analysis, was it 2,000 cases yeah. are completely suspect? Yeah. And they have to be retried. Well, and a lot, because there aren't enough of the forensic labs, right? Um, ideally, you'd want one in every city, but there isn't. So cities are quite often, you know, large labs are doing multiple cities. And under the pressure of the amount of cases, the caseloads, they're not even you know, quite often properly cleaning the equipment between tests. Oh, yeah, there have been uh, quite a few cases where, yeah, cross there's been cross-contamination. Scary stuff. And it's the lawyers that have spotted it, not the scientists. <laughs> well, I mean, like everyone else, when your workload has increased past the point of your ability to keep up with it, things are going to drop and errors are going to be made. Yeah. So, you know, everybody's eager to cut their budgets and they don't want to cut their pet projects, but it's okay to cut on, you know, testing labs, which is just kind of crazy. Weird stuff. Jeannie, any thoughts? No, ma'am. No. Okay. I, I... Do I believe that there's innocent people in jail? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. But I'm one of them people that I also think that there are a whole lot of guilty sons of bitches that are walking the street. There are, but, you know, in a perfect world, that wouldn't be an issue. Um, but by the same token, it's better to have a guilty man run free than to have a thousand innocent men put to death. Right? And that the whole reason why justice is supposed to be blunt? I don't know. It's, it's... Justice is only occasionally blind. <laughs> yeah, well, justice is usually bought and paid for by the people with the most money. I understand that. But uh, for, for, for Jeannie's point of view, yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the dodgiest forensic evidence fields is ballistics. Mm -hmm. Um. Because in the era of mass production, um, yeah, machinery can build firearms that are almost identical. And unless you're using scanning electron microscopes to look at the bullets that they're firing, mm -hmm. yeah, two guns can have very similar looking bullets Rifle. coming out at the end. Rifling patterns, yeah, sure. Especially some of the precision engineered stuff, you know, like some of the German firearms. The ancients, the striations, now that we are in the the digital computer age and everything is coming through a CNC machine, a CNC machine can cut the exact same pattern over and over and over. And this is why that 
they're touted as these wonderful things is because of their accuracy to be able to continually produce the exact same thing. So, yeah. Yeah, so, so unless you have every person committing murder with a firearm buying really expensive handmade match firearms, which are still <laughs> handmade, um, you know, the best barrels in the world, and breech blocks are still handmade. So unless all the murderers happen to ha all be buying those, yeah, you're a bit screwed. Well, you know, uh, the other issue is, I guess, you know, um, everybody remembers Fast and Furious, not the films, the gun running fiasco. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of those guns are coming back yeah. to the United States and being used in crimes. I think that's that's pretty telling. Oh, that the fact, yeah, also I've got to mention, yeah, people at home now can have access to equipment where they can basically scour their gun, change the pin, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So by the time the police get, get hold of it, it might have been completely changed. What was that Mark Wahlberg film? Is it called Shooter? Soul? Shooter. You know which one I'm talking about, the one where he... The only reason he wasn't convicted was because he changed his own fucking firing pin all yeah. the time. Because he oh, was so paranoid. Pe people who really, really enjoy their guns, they do that sort of thing. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. my father used to it's say like little gun. things like, you know, in the UK, you weren't allowed... Yeah, the ones that are worried about their weapons ending up yeah. in somebody else's hands. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, if... It's not a bad premises. Well, I, I think shoot. I really, I really loved that movie. I've seen that movie maybe a lot more than I should have. <laughs> and and um, I've been watched a time or ten in this house. Yeah, no, it, it's a very good film. Um, it has some of my favorite things in it: guns and anti-government sentiment. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um. On that, on that point, there's a reason. If you're paranoid, there's probably a reason to be paranoid. You know, especially with that. And I'm sure people could shoot someone and then scratch the inside of the barrel. It, like Vera was saying, that, there's ways to completely change your gun. Just putting extra scratches in the barrel that wouldn't work because they'd know the scratches were new. But That's how the firing pin yeah. interacts and how the bullet rolls inside the barrel. Well, a lot of modern firearms as well, pistols especially, they've done away with rifling. They're all smoothbore now, which uh, increases the likelihood of mistakes being made in ballistics. Because if there isn't rifling, there's going to be less scratches on the bullet. And I, I hate to think that the processes we're using that make things more accurate and less likely to have uh, misfires are are allowing guilty people to go free um, because that that guilty people going free really bothers me, Jim. It bothers me a lot. Um, um, if you want to talk about, we, we can go right to the one thing I didn't really want to talk about. Uh, the indefinite detention. Did you see that one? Man to remain locked up. It's, yeah. it's one of the last ones. It's like, if you look on the outline, 
it's underneath schools are helping police spy on kids. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I don't. I. I I dislike innocent people being detained. I I out of me that people who are guilty as sin are allowed to walk out of a courtroom and walk free over a piece of fucking paperwork or you know I mean but that piece of paperwork might not matter to you now but someday it might do you know what I mean it might not be a big thing in your life right now there's a reason why we defend unjust laws from happening to fucking scumbags because someday it might come back and bite us in the ass if we just allow it to happen and this guy is a total scumbag. I really don't like it. I didn't even put this on the show notes, but I'm going to read it. And I'm going to read the quote from H.L. Mencken. The trouble with fighting for human freedom is that one spends most of one's time defending scoundrels. For it is against scoundrels that oppressive laws are first aimed, and oppression must be stopped at the beginning if it is to be stopped at all. H.L. Mencken was a smart man. I think he was right on this. I don't want to defend this guy, but again, we're at the fuck my rights means fuck your rights means fuck their rights thing. <clears throat> Man to remain locked up until such time as he fully complies with court order. That is known as what? What do we call that? What do we call what's happened to the people in Guantanamo Bay? Indefinite detention. <sighs> <clears throat> A Philadelphia man suspected of possessing child pornography has been in jail for seven months and counting after being found in contempt of a court order demanding he decrypt two password-protected hard drives. The suspect, a former Philadelphia Police Department sergeant, has not been charged with any child porn crimes. Instead, he remains indefinitely imprisoned at Philadelphia's Federal Detention Center for refusing to unlock two drives encrypted with Apple's File Vault software in a case that once again highlights the extent to which the authorities are going to crack encrypted devices. The man is to remain jailed until such time as he fully complies with the decryption order. The suspect's attorney, federal public defender Keith Donahue, urged a federal appeals court on Tuesday to release his client immediately pending the outcome of appeals. Not only is he presently being held without charges, but he has never been in his life charged with a crime. Donahue wrote in a PDF uh, in his client brief to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. The government successfully cited a 1789 law known as the All Writs Act to compel the suspect to decrypt two hard drives it believed contained child pornography. The All Writs Act was the same law the Justice Department asserted in its legal battle with Apple, in which a magistrate ordered the gadget maker to write code to assist the authorities in unlocking the iPhone used by one of the two shooters who killed 14 people at San Bernardino County Government Building back in December. The authorities dropped that case after they paid a reported $1 million for hack. Donahue wrote that his client's first claim is that the district court lacked subject matter jurisdiction. The claim stems from the government's apparent unprecedented use of an unusual procedural vehicle to attempt to compel a suspect to give evidence in advance of a potential criminal charge. Specifically, the government took resort not to a grand jury, but to a magistrate judge pursuant to the All Writs Act, USC S1651. The defense also claims that compelling the target of a criminal investigation to recall and divulge an encryption passcode transgresses the Fifth Amendment privilege against self 
incrimination. The Supreme Court has never addressed the complete compelled decryption issue. Donahue says the court case came close in 2000 when it said a suspect could not be forced to disclose the sequence of numbers that will open a combination lock. A federal appeals court ruled in 2012, however, that a bank fraud defendant must decrypt a laptop, but the ruling wasn't enforced as the authorities obtained the password elsewhere. Electronic Frontier Foundation has weighed in on the suspect's plight, telling the circuit court in a friend of the court brief that compelled decryption is inherently testimonial because it compels a suspect to use the contents of their mind to translate unintelligible evidence into a form that can be used against them. The Fifth Amendment provides an absolute privilege against self-incrimination compelled decryption. The authorities have called two witnesses. One was a suspect sister who claimed she looked at child pornography with her brother at his house. That's fucking disgusting. The other was a forensic examiner who testified that it was his best guess that child pornography was on the drives. Donahue wrote, the investigation began in 2015 when Pennsylvania prosecutors were monitoring the online network Freenet and executed a search warrant of the man's home. Donahue wrote that investigators had decrypted a Mac Pro using a recovery key discovered on an iPhone 5 the authorities seized from the client's residence. He said no child pornography was found. The authorities want the suspects to decrypt two external hard drives discovered in the search. Um, going back to English common law, if there is no body, you cannot be held without trial, am I correct? As far as I'm aware, yeah. Okay, does that not apply here? Well, yeah, I mean, they, ca they, ca they can't force him to give them the evidence so they can then prosecute him. And they That's... can't put him in jail forever. Yeah. It's... I mean, he's a, he's a, if he did that, he's a fucking scumbag. He's yeah. vile, he's the scum of the earth, and, and somebody needs to fucking kill him. But this is wrong. This is illegal. We're supposed to stand against this sort of thing. We're supposed to have a system that actually follows the law and is compelled to deliver justice. This is it's, not justice. This it's is the disgusting. Fact that you have judges that are just prepared to, well, until he, until he complies, he's not getting out. I mean, that's uh, that's insane. No judge. It shouldn't even enter their mind to do that. That's not what they're supposed to be for. Exactly. Exactly. It, it's ridiculous. I mean, it amazes me. This is okay. How is this okay? How is sitting in jail forever and being forced to incriminate yourself okay? This is, this is in my opinion... If there is no, if there is no body, there is no crime, right? You cannot be forced to, cannot be forced to test against yourself. So, I mean, I think it's pretty clear digital Fourth Amendment violation as well. And it's disgusting. I'm, I'm defending someone who might be a child pornographer. It bothers me in ways I can't imagine. But if the law doesn't apply to the worst of us, it doesn't apply to the best of us. And what sort of justice system do you have? You have a system where only the really rich scumbags are going to get off and the poor people are not. It's disgusting. It's scary. Jeannie?
Go ahead. No, I can't, Jan. Why can't you? I'm not going to get mad if you have a different opinion. Go for it. What did they what did they use as evidence to arrest this piece of shit? His sister's testimony. His sister said that she viewed child pornography at his house. But that's not strong enough for a court case, which is how why they that, haven't brought charges. Sounds enough to arrest him. Yeah. I have no idea. It's circumstantial evidence. It's yeah. It's all circumstantial, and the man is sitting in jail for that. And like I said, if he did it, if, if he even possesses child pornography, he's a scumbag. And he deserves to be treated like the piece of shit that he is. Okay? But this is not the way to go about that. I mean, this is the law. <laughs> We're not living in the time of Judge Dredd yet. This sort of shit isn't supposed to happen. One judge isn't supposed to say you're guilty or innocent based on my opinion. That's not really how this works. It's not how it's supposed to work. So, yeah. <sighs> sorry. I'm sorry. I, I just got to I just got to defend someone that I wouldn't fucking spit on if they were on fire. It makes me happy when I get to do that. I'm sort of kidding. But I agree. It, with a circumstantial case like that, it's amazing he's still sitting in jail. It's ridiculous. Um, for something different, we now go to the UK. Practical applications for mass surveillance databases, family birthday cards, travel diaries. From the ultimate variety search engine department, we want to get a feel information being collected by UK surveillance agencies, MI5, MI6, GCHQ. All you have to do is see how it's being misused. Privacy International, which has been steadily suing the UK government over domestic surveillance, has received another set of documents that show the banality of dragnet surveillance evil. The banality is not so much the dragnet itself, although that's not to say it isn't its own form of evil, is it is the uses it is put to. Ryan Gallagher, writing for The Intercept, points out that spies are using surveillance collections as backup day timers, apparently with enough frequency that they've had to be warned to knock it off. The documents include internal guidance codes for spies who have access to surveillance systems. One memo dated June 2014 warns employees of MI6, the UK's equivalent of the CIA, against performing a self-search for data on themselves, offering a bizarre example that serves to illustrate the scope of what some of the repositories contain. An example of inappropriate self-search would be to use the database to remind yourself where you've traveled so you can update your records, the memo says. This is not a proportionate use of the system, as you could find this information by another means, i.e. check the stamps in your passport or keep a running record of your travel. That would avoid collateral intrusion into other people's data. The information collected includes data that could reveal political preferences, sexual orientation, religious beliefs, memberships in associations or groups, mental, physical health, along with biometric data and financial documents. A little digging, the massive database could be used to uncover journalist sources and privileged communications. The wealth of information at the fingertips of British spies help explain why they never seem to forget important dates. We've seen a few instances recently of individual users crossing the line with their database use, 
looking up addresses in order to send birthday cards, checking passport details to organize personal travel, checking details of family members for personal reasons. The world's greatest search engine isn't Google, it's GCHQ. Of course, the documents also point to various levels of oversight, none of which appear to have made much of a deterrent effect. A monitoring system of some sort appears to be in place, and it's likely what flagged agent self-searches, but it's unlikely to catch other inappropriate searches involving someone other than the person performing the search. These two are forbidden, but it's likely these violations were part of a pattern of sustained abuse rather than one-off searches, which would likely have slipped under the radar as just being another intelligence-related research. What's worse is access to these various vast data stores apparently went oversight-free for several years, and it's not entirely clear from what's been released that comprehensive oversight is in place even at this point in time. One 2010 policy paper from MI6 states, there was no external oversight of its partners' bulk data operations, though the paper adds that this was subject to review. This may not seem completely terrible. After all, six years in government time is like 30 days in real time, until you realize that GCHQ has data sets dating back nearly 20 years. Harvesting began in 1998, and MI5's bulk collection is more than a decade old at this point, and it continues onward, getting more massive by the moment. The GCHQ wants to collect 50 billion records every day, utilizing people's web browsing, phone calls, and email. All the agencies insist that it's all for fighting terrorism and international crime. The cold reality is that it is just as useful for reconciling travel expenses and making sure mom always gets her birthday card on time. Very. Yeah, exactly. People are being people. There's this mm -hmm. giant database of information. You give somebody access to it. First thing they're going to do is start looking up themselves and their friends. It happens. Uh, there's a police officer in Edinburgh who was sacked a few years ago for doing that on the police database. She was bored one day, so started looking up her neighbours, see if they had any criminal records, stuff like Lovely. that. Lovely. That's great. Yeah. It's what people do. It's unsurprising it goes on. It's always going to go on. Um, and this is why you need to have strict oversight. It's mm -hmm. fine having oversight, but if the oversight doesn't actually achieve anything, it's not an oversight. Agreed. Um, am I still breaking up? Uh, not at the moment, no. It, okay. It's one of those drift in and out type things. Okay, um, sorry. Um, it's nothing new. It's not your fault. It's Skype. I, I was just making sure it wasn't me, because usually the fucked up internet is on my end. Well... Yeah, but it's storm time now. Yeah. Daily, we get like these lovely daily storms starting about this time of year. And when this happens, for some reason, it affects my internet. And it shouldn't because my internet's wired and it's got a really good signal. But, yeah, you know. If the, if the cable isn't really if well shielded, longer, the... it doesn't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. Um,. Here's one I didn't say I was going to do, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's about money. One of my favorite things. Banks assert constitutional right to billions in subsidies. They have a constitutional right to billions of your dollars. Did you know that? See, I didn't know that. Having read and studied the Constitution, I saw that nowhere. Did you see that in the Constitution of the Bill of Rights, Jeannie? Because I'm sure you've read it as well. No. Yeah, me either. So 
let's read on and find out why they think this. A trade group for the nation's largest banks has asserted a constitutional right to risk-free profit from the Federal Reserve. Rob Nichols, the chief lobbyist for the American Bankers Association, argued in a comment letter Thursday that a recent federal law reducing the dividend on the stock that banks purchase as part of membership in the Federal Reserve System violates the Fifth Amendment clause banning the uncompromised seizure of property. Congress reduced the dividend as part of a deal to pay for transportation projects. Dividends for the stock, which cannot be bought or sold, had been set at 6% since the Federal Reserve's inception back in 1913. Banks cannot ever lose money on the stock. They're even paid out if regional Fed banks disband. So the dividend represents a risk-free profit, earning back its investment in full every 17 years. The dividend, cut from 6% to its current interest rate on the 10-year Treasury note, is estimated to reduce banks' payments by roughly $7 billion over 10 years. The change only applies to banks with more than $10 billion in assets. The Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment provides that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. How So banks are asserting the money is their property. <clears throat> Nicholas wrote in his comment letter to the Fed, which is preparing to implement the dividend cut. Um, he added that the dividend rate remained unchanged for over 100 years and has long been considered fundamental to the Federal Reserve's ability to attract member banks. Well, I thought it was because there was no other fucking game in town, but what do I know? Contrary to Nicholas's statement, nationally chartered banks are required by law to become members of the Federal Reserve system. And while state banks can opt in or out, they must nonetheless abide by the standards of membership. Moreover, Fed membership offers many perks, from the ability to process payments to access cheap borrowing through the Fed's discount window. So the dividend is just a vestigial sweetener that never went away, pumping billions of dollars of public money into banks for no discernible reason. Given those facts, Nicholas' argument amounts to saying that the 6% dividend rate is itself constitutionally protected because it's been around for a long time. Nicholas's effectively asserts that the risk-free dividend is a bank property. The letter appears to be a prelude to a legal battle over the dividend cut. The claims about constitutionality are precisely what banks would argue before the Supreme Court. And by filing a formal complaint, comment letter protesting the law, the ABA can argue that they exhausted their administrative options before filing suit. Friday is the last day for public comment on the Fed's dividend changed. Outside of the ABA, only one other comment has been filed. So I didn't know that about the Fifth Amendment that that gave the banks the right to our money. That's neat that they think that, huh? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, the, the counter-argument will be, but you don't own the currency, so tough shit. Um, <laughs> I don't know, seeing some of the shit yeah. judges are doing lately, you never know. Yeah. Well, yeah, if, but if, I think the way, the way banks are now anyway, um, I'm probably one of them screwy people that, never mind, I shouldn't say this on the air, but anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, why not? I said my favorite thing, my two favorite things were in the movie Shooter. Um, well, no, but I mean... Go to the bank and tell the bank that you want $1,500 cash. See what happens. 
Just see what happens. I mean, if you got $18,000 in your account, you walk into the bank and you tell the bank that you want $1,500 cash. The first thing they're going to say to you is, what for? Yeah, well, come back another day. We'll have the cops waiting for you. Business, what for? It's my money. I want my money. No, the federal government says you have to tell us why. But it's my fucking money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's not how it works anymore. <laughs> you know, you take your money and everybody, you know, I think the whole direct deposit thing mm-hmm. was a federal government push. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying everybody should go out and conduct all their financial affairs with Bitcoin. Um because, you know, that's electronic too. But I'm sorry if I have more than $1,500 in my account and I want it, give me my money. I shouldn't have to explain to you and produce my ID and fill out a fucking paper to say why I want my money. I agree. I agree. It's it your money. Insane. Yeah, I mean, in the UK, uh, any amount over, I think it's a thousand pounds, you just have to give them a couple of days notice because... They don't have that kind of money on hand. (laughs) Usually not, no, most banks... Bank robberies are not as common as people think because most banks don't actually have any cash in them. Um, (laughs) The vaults look really impressive but there ain't shit in there. There's nothing in there anymore. But in the UK, yeah, you don't have to say what you want it for. You, you yeah, just no, withdraw we your money. <laughs> to, it wasn't like I was trying to hide anything. We were buying a car, and I needed $9,000 out of my account. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind that I had to give them three days' notice to get the nine grand in cash. <laughs> but what right. pissed me off was that I needed to fill out a form as to why I wanted my money. Yes, but they'll say it's all as part of an anti-terrorism thing and we saw how it turned out a couple weeks ago with the dog walker the guy well, paid his dog Jim, walker and i told them i said okay well i'm buying a car well you need you need to write a check for that or take a cashier's check i'm like no the people we're buying the car from are old school they want cash for this car well it it has to be a check or a cashier's check no give me my fucking money <laughs> I, I i mean i just it's just well i mean it should tell you how should tell you how vulnerable things are right now and i was were you and i talking about this earlier very or was i talking about this with someone else where janet yellen's been in president obama's office like every day for the past two weeks having quote-unquote secret meetings and it's not just that i mean the imf's been at the white house a lot They've also been talking with other banks, Japan, China, yeah. all these other banks everywhere. Ben Bernanke's been all over fucking Twitter talking about it. All this shit's supposed to be secret, and that motherfucker's running his damn mouth off. That's how I know. Yeah, they, they, over here, David Cameron has been doing little tours around the place talking to banks as well. Yeah, so, so th- what that has got to tell you is how close to tipping over the system actually is. All of those people that were, you know, stocking up. 
Um, there's a big concern that yeah, lots of the Asian banks are going to end up folding. Oh, China's going to China's yeah. Oh yeah, China's going to fold by the twenty eighth if it hasn't folded already, and that's just you know my best guess. I'm not using anybody else's numbers. I'm just going by just the chatter. Yeah. And it's a huge I know problem what it since China like. has been sort of the global economic driver for the last 10 years mm -hmm. um, it's a real yeah. problem if they hit a bump oh yeah it is a big problem especially since now you, you look at the global interconnectedness of money holy shit they're all connected you know it, yeah, well, it's, it's something like half, half them half the daily daily transactions in the world go through london which is just mm -hmm. scary in itself. Well, I mean, you know, what I was going to say is, is there have been data dumps and releases lately that if, if you know anything about where the money of the poor is going, which is just up into the pockets of the 0.1%, um, you know how hard they're going to fight to keep all that. But I kind of have a fucked up reasoning for reading all this stuff. It's not that I want to know and warn people. It's that I always knew banking and the monetary system was a Ponzi scheme, right? Uh, I just wondered when everybody else was going to find out. And I think we're very close to that point. It just looks funny. What the market is doing with gold and, and silver where it's very, very low and then very, very high. Um, that's an indicator that there are different kinds of markets, right? And one of the markets you don't really hear about is the market that's kind of the faith you have in your government, right? And when no one has faith in their government, precious metals sell high, Bitcoin goes off the charts. It's freaking amazing. And the numbers are skyrocketing for that where you can see people are actually pulling their money out of the global economic system so much as it is these days. So it's, it's really fascinating to watch. Um, as people have less and less faith in their government and those papers, the Panama Papers, <laughs> as they came out and are getting more disseminated, more discussed, more read, you can see people's faith in the government like just hitting and people are pulling their money out of the economic markets everywhere. And everybody's going to be pretty fucked, is my general take on things. So, yeah. Happy news for Monday, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see, I said we'd talk about James Clapper, but we're going to talk about this because this directly fucking affects me. Sue alleges former FDA chief... Uh, danger of deadly drug for sake of profit. What you don't understand is when I had pneumonia, this is what they gave me. Former Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Margaret A. Hamburg, that bitch, her hedge fund executive husband and Fortune 500 giant Johnson Johnson colluded to enrich themselves by failing to warn the public about a deadly antibiotic, a federal racketeering lawsuit claims. Once confirmed as FDA Commissioner, Dr. Margaret A. Hamburg acted as the instrumentally 
that all defendants used to perpetuate their conspiracy and racketeering enterprises by having her act illegally and outside the scope of her authority as FDA commissioner to suppress material information to plaintiffs and the public that Levaquin was inherently dangerous and, in fact, deadly, the complaint alleges. The suit was filed in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia January 19, 2016, on behalf of five individuals who claim they suffered severe physical harm of, as a result of taking the antibiotic. Had this information been disclosed to plaintiffs and the public at large, her and her husband's financial gain and net worth would have plummeted since Dr. Margaret A. Hamburg's husband, Peter F. Brown, reaped and continues to reap huge financial gains as the result of a Renaissance Technologies LLC's holdings of Johnson & Johnson stock, according to the complaint. Alexandra Wash, an attorney for Hamburg, said, Mr. Clayman's allegations against Dr. Hamburg are patently false. There is no factual or legal basis for the lawsuit that he has filed, and we are confident the court will dismiss his claims in their entirety. Walsh is referring to attorney Larry Clayman, who represents the plaintiffs in the suit. The suit further claims that Hamburg ignored pleas from medical experts, patients, and U.S. senators to add additional warnings to labels so she could profit personally, according to the racketeering complaint filed in U.S. District Court, District of Columbia. President Obama appointed Hamburg to run the FDA from May 2009 to March 2015, while her husband, Peter F. Brown, was a co-CEO at a New York hedge fund giant Renaissance Technologies. Renaissance had substantial stock in Levaquin owning Johnson & Johnson during Hamburg's FDA tenure, according to the lawsuit and U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission records, obtained independently by the Daily Caller News Foundation. Forbes estimated Brown earned roughly $90 million in total compensation in 2012. The plaintiffs, Terry Aston, John Frady, Linda Martin, David Milton, and Jennifer Wilcox, claim they suffered muscle twitching, abdominal pain, kidney and liver damage, hair loss, depression, psychosis, hearing and vision problems, and a host of other issues from Levaquin. The FDA's Adverse Events Reporting System documented 500 reported deaths associated with the consuming Levaquin from 2009 to 2015, although the FDA assumes only 10% of such events are reported and there could be as many as 5,000 deaths, the complaint alleges. The plaintiffs seek $870 million in punitive and other damages and a jury trial. The suit also names as defendants Robert L. Mercer and Renaissance founder James H. Simmons, Brown's colleagues during Hamburg's tenure, and Johnson & Johnson subsidiary Ortho McNeil Jameson Pharmaceuticals. The FDA first approved Levaquin for some uses in 1996, but the FDA adverse reporting system since at least 2009 documented the drug's association with serious nerve and psychiatric damage, the complaint claims. Pennsylvania U.S. US Senators Democrat Robert Casey and Republican Pat Toomey also requested more FDA warning labels on Levaquin in 2010, the complaint alleges. Dr. Charles Bennett, oncologist and researcher at the Southern Network on Adverse Reactions at the University of South Carolina, filed two citizens' petitions to Hamburg in Hamburg's FDA in 2014, urging further warning to warn of possible cell damage and neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and Huntington's associated with Levaquin. Hamburg also received hundreds of emails from people who had severe health problems from taking Levaquin but did nothing, the complaint claims. The FDA added some additional warning labels for Levaquin in August 2013 to warn for risk of possible permanent nerve damage from antibacterial fluoroquinone, but suppressed the full 
the drugs felt dangerous, the complaint alleges. It wasn't until November 2015, after Hamburg left, that an FDA advisory committee recommended clearer, more comprehensive warning labels for Levaquin and related drugs, the complaint alleges. The complaint also alleges that Hamburg verbally supported October 2013 FDA approval of the painkiller Zyhodro produced by pharmaceutical company Alchemines, while Renaissance held significant stack in Alchemines. An FDA advisory board voted 11 to 2 against approving Zyhodro in December 2012 over fears the drug didn't have enough anti-abuse protections, and 28 state attorney generals urged the FDA to undo its approval of the drug in December 2013. Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia, introduced a bill in 2014 to ban the opioid, but Hamburg defended the drug's approval in March 2014 congressional hearings, saying that, if appropriately used, it serves an important and unique niche with respect to pain medication, and it meets the standards for safety and efficiency. Both Alchemies and Johnson & Johnson's stock value decreased significantly during Hamburg's tenure, um, I'm sorry, increased, according to Yahoo Financial Historical Data. Renaissance also increased its holdings from 117,800 shares with 2.79 million to 794,668 shares worth 22.79 million in the second quarter of 2013 before Zyhodro's October 2013 approval, according to the complaint. The Office of Government Ethics directed Hamburg and her husband to divest all personal holdings in Renaissance except those in Renaissance Medallion Fund because OGE considered its computerized quantitative model similar to a blind trust, according to the Wall Street Journal. Hamburg's financial disclosures show she kept between $25,000 and $500,000 in Medallion Fund assets, and Brown kept more than $1 million. But the complaint alleges Hamburg failed to disclose that her husband had, at all material times, still held shares in and benefits financially from all the stock of Renaissance via Renaissance profit sharing. Lawyers for Brown, Mercer, Simmons, Renaissance Technologies, and Johnson & Johnson did not respond to requests for comment. Uh, yes. I don't think anybody's shocked. No, not really. But yeah, I'm actually surprised that the was it the off the the OGE, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, yeah, they told them yeah, get rid of all your personal holdings in these companies, and obviously didn't check that they had got rid of them. Yeah, you know, well, th- it should be a prerequisite for any of these important public positions that their background is fully checked, and they should legally have to open all our financial accounts for scrutiny mm-hmm. by independent people so that yep. this shit can't happen I agree but no 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 they, they have despite it being an important public office where the lives of all the public are in their hands no 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 they're allowed to have these little you know, this little private bit off to themselves. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a private matter. It's like yeah. tax evasion is a private matter, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Jeannie? I hate Any? the FDA to begin with. Well, everybody hates, everybody in this room hates the FDA, I think. It's a money-grubbing fucking catastrophe that everybody says, oh, but they're going to make sure we're safe. No, <laughs> no. No, they're Every, not. 
Those ambulance chase and lawyer commercials you see on the television should prove to you, without a doubt, numerous times a day, the FDA could give a shit. It still floors me that I can look at people and go, well, you know the FDA didn't do any of that research to approve that drug, right? Oh, no, they, they do. They No, didn't you know that? The FDA does all this research on these no, drugs. They no, well don't. they fucking well don't. The companies that want to put this shit on the market do the research. And so, and people are like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, like um, well, the, the one for vapors is always Chantix. Very inclined. Yeah. And, oh, I like yeah, how they just... Pfizer kind of... Oh, we lost some of the evidence. You know, well, mis- we misfiled it. Here's the thing: they're kind of they're required to test this stuff on all types of people, yeah. right? You can't tell me it didn't ring somebody's fucking bell when they sat there and went through the test results. That the results for people that have mild depression stuff were just fucking wiped completely out of the testing. You know, no, no, they appear no. on the they, graph on yeah, one page yeah, and then they, they not misplaced on the next. it. It got put in with the papers for another drug test. That's it's what bullshit. actually officially that's what they say what happened. It's bullshit. Yeah. It's bullshit. And I haven't I haven't looked recently, but last year the out of court settlements over it were up to over five hundred million dollars in the US alone. Mm-hmm. But of course, you never hear about it in the press because to get your money, you've got to sign a non-disclosure. Well, you know, there were a <laughs> and, lot of problems. And the FDA allowed that one. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant mm-hmm. well, work. Well, there's a lot of problems with the Chantix study if you go through it line by line. Yeah. There's a lot of odd numbers, weird graphs, and, and evidence that should be in places it's not, move decimal points. It's all very, I don't want to say sinister, but I want to say sinister. It it really is fucked up. And then people say, well, you know, they had some clerical errors. Hello? Wait, time out, back up. These people are supposed to be scientists. Scientists don't make clerical errors. They're not supposed to. Well, I mean, individual scientists can make clerical errors. But in the case of this sort of stuff, they're working in teams. So somebody else in the team should be able to pick up the fact there's been an error. So they can correct it. That That's why you work in teams. You know, it's... But no, 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 no not, not, if you're, not if you're wanting to bring out a new drug. Uh, the, the other amazing one with Chantix, right, because for e-cigs, oh, we need a long-term mass study to see <laughs> the effects on people. Um, Chantix, the original trial was one year, one thousand people. And they said, "Yep, it's safe." Good enough. Pardon? <laughs> it's, excuse it's me. <laughs> and it's bullshit. It really yeah. is bullshit. I mean, let's be honest. That stuff is bullshit. And then, what was it? The new quote-unquote meta study that they did a couple weeks ago, and of course, it was from UCSF. Said <laughs> yeah. Chantix is completely safe. I'm like, I don't fucking believe anything that comes out of UCSF at all anymore, ever. Thank you <clears throat> Stanley so much Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's two names for scientific research. If you see them mentioned in a document, you know the document's not worth a damn. 
UCSF and Sheffield. Those, those are the two, you know, junk science centers of the world. Why well, I, I think we should call them junk science corporations because they're just pumping this shit out like pollution out of smokestack. Yeah, because because for the audience who don't know, <laughs> Sheffield University, Sheffield University, they've got this department, and it's epidemiology, uh, and. Do you know, amazingly, they have this computer modeling software that when something comes up that regulators need to have a look at, like uh, in the UK, minimum alcohol pricing. They want uh-huh. it. Yeah, within, you know, almost, almost minutes of that being announced, Sheffield University have a study saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we've got a... Yeah, we've done this computer modeling, and it says <laughs> it's, it's, it says you know if if you put a minimum price on alcohol per unit, yeah, you'll cut smoke, yeah, uh, you know, you'll cut alcohol related illness by so many mm-hmm. percent. Right, you know what people. Think and then if they get, get criticised, it, it gets put on a back burner, and then a few weeks later, a new report will have come out from <laughs> Sheffield. They'll have tweaked some of the variables in their computer model uh, but it still comes to the same conclusion you know? mm-hmm. it's amazing well you know I mean Cl- Clive Bates talks about it a fair bit Semic is one of the worst computer modeling systems I've ever seen you can there was a nurse and I talk about this every so often we talk about disease clusters and stuff because we haven't talked about the Zika virus or anything this year um, I, I'm still looking at that before I want to say anything about it. So that's why we haven't really discussed it, but we've talked about disease clusters before. And I think, have I talked about the nurse and the flu study? Yeah, I don't remember. The Canadian nurse and the flu study. Well, she worked in a department, right? And All the nurses were first to get flu shots in Canada, of course, much like they are here. And she started looking at the numbers going, we haven't, 2,000 people died this year from flu. We haven't seen that many people. So she went back and started backtracking the data they were putting into SAMEC for this. If you died falling down the stairs, if you died with a ruptured aorta, if you died with a cough, if you died with a fever, you know, which happens in hospitals, whatever, you were automatically put into the group of people that had a flu. So there were murdered people. They were put in this group of people that they said died with the flu. When she continued her investigation, and it took her a few years to just get through what happened in this one year, she found that the number of people that had died worldwide from this horrible strain of flu was like actually 100 people. So how did 2,000 people die in Canada? Semic. Yeah. They well, punch the same, in the variables. They could. It's they the control the information. They, they control the mind. It's the Go same. Ahead. It's the same way they collect the uh, deaths from smoking-related illness. Exactly. You have people that have been shot in an armed robbery. Yes. Who get put down as smoking-related death? Because and their medical records that said yeah. they smoked. Yeah. yeah. Not the giant <laughs> hole put through their chest. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's all... Public health is the biggest frickin' fiasco. 
It's a scam. Like the FDA. It's a, it's a freaking scam. Well, as I say, the, the main problem with public health is they have mm -hmm. too many epidemiologists with not enough to do, apparently. Uh, yeah, you have experts in tropical medicine. Some people will know who I'm referring to. <laughs> who who apparently think they're world-renowned... Well, they're, they're referred to by another <clears throat> person as <laughs> a world expert and guru in tobacco research. Guru. A guru, yeah. Did you not see that? That's on Twitter. Uh, I, I just like the, 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 the hateful title, eight were referred to as gurus. Um, when I, by know, one, of the, one of the eight, funnily enough. Um, all I can tell you is maybe because I'm highly influenced by Eastern religion, that is not... Those motherfuckers aren't exactly gurus to me. Well, my, my, uh, my response on Twitter was to people who are fans of old computer technology will know this one. I put mm -hmm. in a picture of what I considered them being referred to as gurus. And it was something called a guru meditation error. That's from Commodore Amiga computers way back. When you had a error, it called it a guru meditation. <laughs> but yeah. That's hilarious. But yeah, so yeah, loads of public health's made up of epidemiologists and statisticians who just sit there playing with numbers. And you could make the numbers do whatever you like. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. I don't like that that particular grouping in the data set. I shall just ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to look at something else in the study then. Bad your ah, blimp yes. does that a lot. <laughs> oh, a lot of them do it. A lot of them do it. A lot of them exclude data and it's criminal. And that's yeah. why the blog Retraction Watch is such an interesting read. Seeing how many of these fuckers get get caught is the interesting part. And a lot of the times you've got these great peer-reviewed studies that are being pulled apart by students. Yeah. Because the people in charge aren't paying attention. It's some really fascinating stuff. <coughs> okay. Um, since since I just bashed uh, banks, the FDA, um, criminal investigations, I guess we'll move on to James Clapper. <laughs> It's always fun for me. It's fun for me. I like picking on people who suffer from magical thinking. <laughs> Here we go. House Representatives to James Clapper. No, really. Stop ignoring the question and tell us how many Americans are spied on by the NSA. Way back before Snowden became a household name, Senator Ron Wyden kept pushing James Clapper the Director of National Intelligence, to reveal more details on how the NSA was interpreting certain provisions in the Patriot Act to spy on Americans. You probably recall the infamous exchange in a 2013 Senate hearing in which Wyden asked Clapper, does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? And Clapper said, no, sir, not wittingly. Snowden himself later noted that this particular exchange was part of what inspired him to leak documents to reporters just a couple of months later. However, that question had some history. Two years earlier in 2011, we wrote about James Clapper's ridiculous response to a letter from Wyden about this topic. Wyden had asked Clapper to answer some questions about 
NSA authorities to collect information on Americans, and Clapper had refused to answer on the basis of he didn't really want to. A year later, in the summer of 2012, Wyden got more explicit, saying he would block the FISA Amendment Act until Clapper gave an estimate of how many Americans had their information sucked up by the NSA. This time, Clapper responded in December of 2012 by saying it would be impossible to actually say how many Americans had their information scooped up by the NSA. We don't know why, because six months later, Ed Snowden revealed the answer to be basically everyone. But in December, Clapper sent a letter saying to Wyden, we cannot provide additional answer to your questions in an unclassified format. Rather than provide you with imprecise, unclassified information, I reiterate our offer to meet with you and any other members of Congress in a classified setting to discuss these authorities and answer any questions you might have. Wyden, along with a few other senators, pointed out that their question shouldn't reveal anything classified. First, we asked if any entities had made any estimates, even imprecise estimates, over how many U.S. communications have been collected under Section 702 of the FISA statute. You did not answer this question. Please provide an answer. We would expect an answer to be unclassified, but if you disagree, please provide your reasons for keeping this answer secret. Second, we asked if it was possible to estimate the order of magnitudes of the number. For example, is the number of U.S. communications collected under Section 702 closer to 100, 100,000, or 100 million? You did not answer the question directly. However, the director of the NSA has made public statements that appear to estimate this to this order of magnitude. Specifically, the NSA director said that the story that the NSA has millions or hundreds of millions of dossiers on people is absolutely false. Please explain whether this statement should be understood to mean the number of U.S. communications collection collected under Section 702 is less than millions or hundreds of millions. Since the NSA director made this statement publicly, we would expect this answer to be unclassified as well. Third, we asked if any wholly domestic American communications had been collected under Section 702. Your response was classified. We do not understand how simply stating whether any wholly domestic communications have been collected under Section 702 authorities would have any act, impact at all on U.S. national security interests. If you believe that it would, please explain why. And if you agree it would not, please provide an unclassified answer to the question. Fourth, we noted that the FISA Amendments Act does not prohibit searching through communications collected under Section 702 to find the communications of particular Americans, and asked if the U.S. government had ever attempted to search for the communications of a specific American in this way without a warrant or emergency authorization. Your response was classified. We do not understand how providing a yes or no answer to this question would impact U.S. national security interests in any way, and we ask you provide an unclassified response. Eventually, after getting a lot of pressure from other senators, Wyden, you know, did his usual thing and folded like a house of cards. He agreed to lift his hold on the bill. At first, he offered an amendment saying he would lift the hold only if the NSA would release a number about how many Americans had their information collected by the NSA. However, with folks like that fucking bitch Diane Feinstein and Saxby Chambliss screaming about how terrorists would throw blow up everything if the spying didn't continue, the bill eventually passed. And while some tried to bravely follow up with the questions raised by Wyden, once the bill passed, there was no legal leverage anymore, and nothing much happened. It was just a couple months later that Wyden asked his now famous question and Snowden released his documents. But a bunch of representatives on the other side of the Capitol, all members of the House Judiciary Committee, have realized that James Clapper has still never answered the question. And they've now sent him a letter 
asking him to finally answer at least some of the questions concerning how many Americans have had their data sucked up by the NSA. In order that we may properly evaluate these programs, we ask you to provide us with a public estimate of the number of communications or transactions involving United States persons subject to Section 702 surveillance on an annual basis. And it just kind of goes on and on and on from there. So um, I guess the gist of this is that fucker doesn't have to answer if he doesn't want to, and there's nothing Congress can do to compel him to do so. Yeah, I was going to say, it's kind of a big flaw in the system where representatives of the people can't get questions from, get civil answers as such, and sensible answers, from another person who's supposed to be a public representative. (laughs) In the case of this guy runs the NSA and other heads of these alphabets, Mm -hmm. When congressmen and the like ask them questions, they should have to answer, and if they don't, they go to jail. It should be that simple. Oh, I agree. I agree. And Life should be why that wasn't simple. it built that way? Because, <laughs> yeah, this is ridiculous. You know, the guy's I... basically been not answering the same question for years. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's not... People say it's a flaw in the system. I say it was designed that way. Um, you know, it also goes back to understanding what the deep state is. Yeah. You know, these people... Well, the the, the equivalent system. in the UK uh, has happened where uh, MI6 have been asked questions right. and they didn't answer. <laughs> then there was a new head of MI6. <laughs> That's what happens here. They're like, oh, you're not going to answer our questions. Bye-bye. And the next person answers the questions, because, yeah. (laughs) They don't want to get fired, too? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, because over here, um, public service is kind of weird. They do have a guaranteed pension, but that can be taken away from them if it's misconduct. And not answering questions, that's misconduct. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they thought of that over here. (laughs) I don't... Well, I'm pretty sure they have other money socked away. I hate to say it. But oh, yeah, but it's it's still, you know, at least here, if you don't answer the nice politician's question, you will get, you will be out of a job. Seems um, like some way to handle things, doesn't it? Yeah, because, I mean, yeah, there have been guys in the secret services over here who have been threatened with jail. It's like, mm-hmm. you answer this question or you're getting locked up. <laughs> And they've then answered the questions. Because you really don't want to get locked up in a military prison. Sure. People think normal prisons are bad. Yeah, they haven't seen military prisons. (laughs) Military prisons still have hard labour. Well, you know, hey. Eh, At least you have a way to compel answers out of your public servants. Except for James Cameron. Who thinks everything is a private matter? Okay, so I said we'd talk about encryption. Here it is. Spy chief complains that Edward Snowden sped up the speed of encryption by seven years. The director of national intelligence on Monday blamed NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden for advancing the development of user-friendly, widely available, strong encryption. As a result of the Snowden revelations, the onset of commercial encryption has accelerated by seven years, James Clapper said during a breakfast for journalists hosted by the Christian Science Monitor. 
The shortened timeline has had a, quote, profound effect on our ability to collect, particularly against terrorists, he said. When pressed by The Intercept to explain his figure, Clapper said it came from the NSA. The projected growth, maturation, and installation of commercially available encryption, which they had forecasted seven years ahead, three years ago, was accelerated to now because of the revelation of the leaks. Asked if it was a good thing, leading to better protection for American consumers from the arms race of hackers constantly trying to penetrate their software worldwide, Clapper answered no. From our standpoint, it's not. It's not a good thing, he said. Technologists have been tirelessly working to strengthen encryption for decades, not just the past few years. But Soon's revelations about the pervasiveness of mass surveillance clearly accelerated its widespread availability. And technologists say the threat of law enforcement going dark has been overhyped. For instance, there are almost always ways to hack around encryption, even if you can't break it. Clapper himself acknowledged there is no such thing as unbreakable encryption from his, ex his perspective. In the history of mankind, since we've been doing signals intelligence, there's really no such thing given proper time and proper application of technology, he said. But one time he wasn't sounding delusional. <laughs> well, hmm, don't know about that. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, compared to how he usually sounds, yeah. we can have a back door and you can yeah, have privacy. All, all, all the encryption that's being put on devices now has been around for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not new. <laughs> no. There haven't been new breakthroughs in encryption for quite some time. Mm. I know, that used to be when I'm... Back when I was learning computers, encryption mm -hmm. was my speciality. Right. So yeah, there's not much changed in the last 20 years. <laughs> um, the last, the last big breakthrough was about 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> I know they, I, I know there was actually, the NSA was actually warning people at one point not to use like an older type of encryption. Um, and I think that's hilarious that they were warning people not to use it. You know, and yeah, cause the back doors are in the new stuff, not in the old stuff. Yeah. You don't use anything new. It's like I said, I think we're going to be. Subject to rotary phones and mailing shit through the mail, but even that's not <laughs> even that's not really safe because we know the government has a program to photograph a piece of mail that goes through the U.S. Postal Service. So yeah, the NSA will just start doing what the Stasi used to do. Yeah. Open the mail. Yeah. Open the mail, read it, stuff it back in the envelope. Yeah, if, if people want to know how bad security state can get, they should go read up on East Germany. You know what? I don't know. I mean, you want to talk about bad? Let's talk about the Toko. Mm. You know what the Toko were? Yeah. The Japanese thought police? Yeah. Oh, they were, the, the Stasi took it even further, though. The Stasi <laughs> did take it further, but I'm saying the Toko went around and actually policed your fucking thoughts. Yeah. Your thoughts. This is kind of why we talk about this stuff. Because this shit happened in the past. It should scare you that it's openly happening now. Yeah. You know, at some point, something is going to make people reach the tipping point where they're angry enough that they do something about it, whether it's they encrypt all their files and they encrypt everything that they have, or they protest or they write a letter or commit some sort of, you know, civil disobedience. Something's going to make us reach the tipping point. 
really hope it's soon. And this is why. Supreme Court allows FBI to hack any computer anywhere with a warrant. Thanks to a Supreme Court decision on Thursday, law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, may end up with broad powers to hack any computer, regardless of its physical location. But the expansion of power hinges upon congressional approval. And of course, if we have our usual suspects, they'll be talking it up. With a new rule in the Federal Rule of Criminal Procedures, which covers search and seizure protocols, federal judges would be able to issue warrants to search computers located anywhere in the world. Before the Supreme Court's altercation, federal magistrate judges were allowed only to issue warrants within their own jurisdictions. The Supreme Court submitted the changes to Congress as part of the Court's annual review of its procedures, which were passed by Congress in 1938 for a more uniform way of dealing with criminal cases across the country. At least one senator and several privacy rights organizations called the decision an affront to civil rights and a doorway to unchecked government hacking. Congress has until December 1st to amend or block the Supreme Court decision. Democratic Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, the Hold'em and Fold'em bastard, has publicly slammed the decision on Twitter and said he will propose a bill to reverse it. Oh, I bet he'll get a lot of traction on that and then he'll fucking cave and pull it. These amendments will have significant consequences for Americans' privacy and the scope of the government's powers to conduct remote surveillance and searches of electronic devices, Wyden said in a statement. These are complex issues involving privacy, digital security, and our Fourth Amendment rights, which require thoughtful debate and public vetting. Wyden also expressed concerns that the amendments can grant the FBI the power to search millions of computers at once, a common case for possible large-scale government hacking under the new Rule 41 may come when the FBI decides to target a cybercriminal network made of thousands of compromised computers called a botnet. Most of these botnet computers are operated by regular citizens who have no idea their computer has been compromised. The Department of Justice has been prodding the courts to make this amendment happen for years, according to Annie Stepovich, U.S. policy manager at the tech policy organization Access Now. But fed up with the slow-moving Congress, the Justice Department chose a less transparent route. It should be up to Congress to decide the rules for government hacking after an informed public debate. However, Congress has never yet spoken on the issue, Stepanovich says. The Department of Justice welcomed the changes. For years, the Department pushed for reform on Rule 41, arguing it will help prosecute criminals who use Tor and other browsers, which allow users to surf the Internet in complete anonymity. Earlier this month, a federal judge in Oklahoma had to turn down evidence in a child pornography case due to Rule 41 limitations. FBI agents identified child pornography downloaders by placing trackers inside a dark web child porn forum called Playpen, but that evidence was suppressed because a magistrate judge in Virginia, not in Oklahoma, gave the warrant for Playpen raid long before the Oklahoma case. Why should the rule be, you can hack a computer with a warrant if you know what where it is, but not when you don't, says Nicholas Weaver, cybersecurity researcher at UC Berkeley's International Computer Science Institute Politico. In 2015, the Department of Justice proposed amending Rule 41 to a Judicial Advisory Committee in Congress. Google, along with the ACLU, the EFF, and other privacy advocacy groups, wrote a letter raising concerns that changes would break international agreements and violate the Fourth Amendment. Despite the Justice Department's weak assurance that the amendment does not purport to expand the current scope of Rule 41, reads the letter penned by Google Law Enforcement and Information Security Director Richard Segaldo. In reality, it will. 
the nature of today's technology is such that warrants issued under the proposed amendment will in many cases end up authorizing the government to conduct searches outside the United States. According to Politico, only a fraction of Congress seems to understand the implications surrounding Rule 41. When Hillade says most officers are unfamiliar with Rule 41 amendments, but both sides of the Rule 41 amendment agree Congress and the general public needs to debate in the upcoming months. If ever there was a job for the internet outrage machine, the Rule 41 changes are it, tweets Matt Blaze, a cryptography expert and University of Pennsylvania associate professor. Yay! Yeah. And we already know that they, they can do it because, well, you, they got well, GCHQ, GCHQ to can do, do things it. for they them. Yeah. It's like, just... we, we need this computer hacked. Okay. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's, But it's ridiculous. And they're drowning in this stuff. Yeah. They're literally drowning in it. I mean, who is, um, does anybody, because now, like, my brain is stretched so far, the fact that I have to go back and look for it's going to piss me off. Um, when you look at leaks like the Pentagon Papers, right? Um, and you you look at the people who've leaked the stuff, they actually say the government had all the information to stop the bombing in Boston. They had all the information to stop what happened over in the UK. They had all the information to stop everything that's happened terroristically everywhere. But there's so goddamn much information that they're drowning in it now. Yeah. They, they can't get out. They can't get out from under, and they want to collect more. And... We've always said, well, why do they want to collect more? Well, because it's more money in their fucking budgets. Yeah. It has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with keeping us safe. It has to do with the same thing it's always had to do with, and that's money. Well, interestingly, in the UK, we have this Snoopers Charter. But it's kind uh. of being pushed politically. The actual security agencies aren't actually that keen on it. Mm-hmm. For the very reason. GCHQ has you know, specialised in targeted information gathering. That's what they're really, really good at. That's why the NSA use GCHQ when they Mm -hmm. want to target specific information. Because the NSA, as you say, collect everything and then don't know what to do with it. So they go to GCHQ, we need information on that. And GCHQ go, there you go. So in some ways, (laughs) I think it's, it's, it's a political thing in the UK. It's not the security agencies that are pushing for it. Which is a bit strange. Well, Theresa May. Every time I see that bitch, she looks more and more like a fucking Bond villain. She really does. And the fact that she's so pushing that super charter, just, it's insane. And she has the world's best sounding job. Office of, you know, Office of Home, you know, really? Home secretary. Yes. That sounds like a great job. It sounds like a person who, who comes in and, and types your letters and makes you a cup of tea. Oh, this is the bitch that wants to snoop on you and everything you do. Well, well you see, the UK, we, we changed job titles uh, back in the 1930s. Because <laughs> things like now we have the Secretary for Defence. That isn't what the job was originally called. He was originally Minister for War. But they thought that was a bit aggressive sounding, so they changed it. So yeah, we've got these job titles that 
really don't match up quite right with the jobs people do. You know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're they're not they're descriptive, but not correct descriptive <laughs> in the right way. Yeah, it's just it's ridiculous, and it, it's because we don't matter. They just want more money. I mean, yeah. of course, it, it's the same old story. It's the same with the FDA. Well, it's I mean, the same the, the Snooper's Charter agency. is basically they just want to control the data flow. It's got nothing to do with what, you know, we're, we're going to catch they more criminals. They don't need to control the fucking data flow. They already do. Well, that, you know? Well, they don't and they can't because of the very way certain things work with computers. They can control parts of what goes around, but they can't control it all. Not all at the same time. Well, they're never which is going what to they really to seem to want to do. But well, they're never nobody really, can do that. They're never really going to be able to. I no, mean, it's too big. They want to be God. Yes. That's that's not going to work out well they're, for they're, them. Basically, there's it, it's a common problem. Um, they're still thinking 18th century, and we're now in the 21st. They want yeah, to be able well, to control how everything's done. But that's not how the world works anymore. No, it's not. And basically, all this stuff is going to lead up to a, a balkanization, basically, of the world. Where politicians and what they do matter less and less to us, and we sort of go our own way. Yeah. I don't really think that's a bad thing, but I think it, it, it's going to be a really unique time. I think well, things... I mean, you've, you've read some of the, you know about some of the stories. I do. Um, and they complain a bit about cyber terrorism. Uh, gee, if they keep bringing in all this security <laughs> oversight to the internet, they're going to find out just how extensive cyber terrorism is. Because well, shit, when they piss off all the hackers, yeah, they're in deep shit. Well, you know, they're. I mean, they already have people. You already. I mean, for several decades now, you have drunk kid hackers for a joke. Ah, I'll turn off all the traffic lights in that city. Bunk. Chaos oh. ensues. What are they going to do when that happens to all their computer systems simultaneously? Well, the shit needs to be on closed systems anyway. Yeah. That's the thing. That's, that's one all thing, of yeah. these, All of these places, and they're like, oh, these hackers, take your fucking system and close it. How about updating your fucking Windows? How about updating Windows? How about not well, using Windows did you see the one, 98 for banking, for fuck's sake? No wonder they're the able to hack the banks. Did you see the one last week in Germany? The, no. the nuclear reactor computers. Oh, I did. I yeah. did. And you see, yeah. they were sensible. Viruses <laughs> got on their computers, but it didn't matter because the computers couldn't communicate with the internet. So none of the sensitive information could get leaked out. No, you fucking don't. You you need to have a nuclear power plant that's not on the fucking grid. Yeah. Well, I mean, well they were. I mean, the yeah, computers that were they're infected weren't connected to the internet. Well, I mean, you've, you've <laughs> got to understand, though, Germany, Germany has some of the most sophisticated computer technologists in the world there 
not just oh, they've the been, Chaos they've been Computer Club, but some of the everywhere. top hackers since exactly. the 80s. So, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they just have the best of the best of the best doing this stuff. So they know what they're doing, unlike the fucking hacks we have here in America who are like, yeah, it's fine to have Windows 98 running all your ATMs. What could possibly go wrong? See, in the UK, we've got a different <laughs> problem. Uh, we keep having, like, uh, people people working for our defence industry leaving important data on laptops, forgetting the laptop, and it's left on the train. Yeah. Why are they able to take the data out from the secure place and leave it on a train? That's but haven't just we talked about this? Well. What kind of people work for the government? They're yeah. not generally the most competent people, and they don't get fired, so... But in the case yeah. of sensitive security data, that's national security, yeah, they shouldn't be allowed to take the computer off the premises. Right. <laughs> to be able should. to leave it on a train. It's like, yeah. are you really, you haven't, you say you're <laughs> all about security, but you really haven't thought it through. Yeah. yeah. That's it's true. It's all about how keeping all this information secure on the internet. Take it off the, don't, don't give it access to the fucking <laughs> internet. <laughs> That would be the smart thing to do. Well, I can I can tell you, basically for a fact that yeah, a lot of GCHQ's stuff isn't on the internet. They mm -hmm. have live systems which are connected to to the internet, and they have storage systems which aren't. And there's a whole group of people whose job it is to transfer stuff between one and the other. Yeah. And no direct digital communication between the systems there's always people in between which yeah that's a problem too but there's no other way to do it at least they're not automatically connected because yeah that's idiotic yeah because yeah. as soon as you add a, a hard line or a wireless connection yeah somebody can get in through it very true and I'm, I don't think I'm going to read the last story because I'm sure Jeannie would like to go see her lovely husband. No, my lovely husband is out of town. You want me to read the last story? It's the one about the kids, unless you want to read it. The schools in Florida one? Yeah, no, I'm there. I was wondering when you were going to get to this. <laughs> well, I knew you'd want to talk about it. Yeah, I have opinions on this. Schools are helping police spy on kids. Social media activity. Schools in Florida are renewing a program that monitors their students' social media activity for criminal or threatening behavior, although it has caused some controversy since its adoption last year. The school systems in Orange County, where Orlando is located, recently told the Orlando Sentinel that a program which partners with the school system with the local police departments has been successful in protecting students' safety, saying that it led to 12 police investigations in the past in the past year. The school district says it will pay about $18,000 annually for SnapTrends, the monitoring software used to check students' activity. It is the same software used by police in Racine, Wisconsin, to track criminal activity and joins a slew of similar social media monitoring software used by law enforcement to keep an eye on the community. SnapTrends collects data from public posts on student social media accounts by scanning for keywords 
that signify cases of cyberbullying, suicide threats, or criminal activity. School security staff then comb through the flag posts and alert police when they see fit. I have a huge fucking bitch with this entire story, Jan. Research suggests that 23% of children and teens have been cyberbullied. Students connecting to social media and suicide have not shown definitive results, but there has been research that suggests cyberbullying leads to suicide ideation more than traditional bullying. Orange County Public Schools adopted the Snap Trends program as part of a prevention and early intervention program. After, New- after Newtown, Connecticut, school shootings in 2012, the school participated in a sweeping technological review with law enforcement and state emergency experts with a focus on safety. They recommended some sort of social media monitoring program, saying that threats can sometimes be spotted on social media postings. We felt the need to deal with these vulnerabilities. Sherry Bobskinski, who manages the media relations in the school system, told the Washington Post. Orange County Schools said that since implementing the software last year, it has run 2,504 automated searches. By the way, folks, on your kids who may or may not have been on school grounds during school hours. Leading to 215 manual searches by school staff, again, wasting more of your money on things that may or may not have been done during school hours. Details of the 12 police investigations that stemmed from searches in the past year have not been divulged by the school system. And of course, if you ask them, guys, this is Jeannie talking, they're probably not going to tell you whether this pertained to your kid. <coughs> the, <laughs> the school system told the Orlando Sentinel that it doesn't want public details of the program to interfere with it, its effectiveness. Fuck you, people. My kid. My kid's phone you will tell me um and you're using my tax dollars to do it so yeah you will tell me um babinski however shared one anecdote from last year the software flagged a female student for using the keyword cutting and the phrase nobody will miss me since the software gets a huge number of flags for words and phrases like these the security staff deviled deeper Investigating more posts by the student, they discovered that she had two conflicting social media accounts, one that told the story of a happy normal girl and the other one suffering from from suicidal thoughts and depression. The school staff alerted the police who conducted a welfare check and the story exemplifies the kind of... Oh, wait, I missed a line who conducted a welfare check at the student's home and informed her father. She eventually went into treatment. The story exemplifies the kind of safety checks that social media monitoring offers. But Bradley S. Shear, a privacy and social media lawyer based in Bethesda, Maryland, expressed concerns about the unintended consequences of using software like Snapchat. He is uncomfortable with the collection and storing of information on students. It is this data then going to be tied to a student's permanent school record? And you can bet your ass it will, folks. Mm -hmm. Does the company have the proper policies in place that deletes the data after a certain period of time? Probably not. Doubtful. 
These are some of the questions that need to be asked, he said in an interview with The Post. An example of an appropriate period of time for data to be stored, he suggests, would be until a year after the student graduates or until they turn 18. No, I am not warm and fuzzy with that. (laughs) A guidance set by the California state law that aims to protect social media privacy for students monitored by the schools. Um, (laughs) Kids are very tech savvy, he emphasized. Uh, No, they're not. They're (laughs) fucking stupid, dude. They're stupid. And are likely to find creative ways to evade monitoring. That would put their social media lives even further away from the watchful eyes of parents or other adults. Well, parents is one thing. The school is another. Shear also expressed fears of an inevitability of highly intrusive monitoring. Dun-da-dun, winner-winner. Such as collecting data on students during after-school hours or off-school property. Ding-ding-ding-ding-ding. A software flag would require school staff and, and possibly police to track a student more closely. In Babinski's story of the suicidal student in Orange County, the original flag was set off on school property. SnapTrend's geofencing technology limits monitoring within a locational boundary. Yes, I'm all about the locational boundaries. But investigators delved into her public post from after-school hours as the check into her mental health status. Orange County isn't alone in choosing to monitor students. It's not their fucking job, by the way. It's your job as a parent. Schools in Alabama and California have adopted similar social media mining software. Am I the only one really freaking disturbed over this? How do you not see that? You don't even look at my page. I'm, I'm telling you, you don't, because this stuff's no. all up there. I just yeah. need to tag you I, so you can get it. Pisses me every freaking time I see it. It it pisses. Me. Parents need to parent. Mm-hmm. Schools need to teach. Your job at a school is to teach. Do that job and do it well, because you're not doing that job well. So you have no fucking business trying to take on another job. I love it when she gets angry like. Also, uh, yeah, a lot of the responsibility for some of the stuff that goes on uh, needs to be laid at the door of Mark Dushy McTwat, um, who, oh, all the data, you know, it's all got to be genuine and you share everything about your life. And, you know, so Facebook, Twitter, all these places, you know, it's like you shouldn't be sharing all your stuff. No. Schools, schools have a job, okay? The job of the school is twofold. Keep my kids safe when they're in your building and teach them things. Right. Oh, also, that's, that's their job. Also, right. Okay, n- not all kids are smart. Yeah, you, you covered that. But yeah, some of the <laughs> smarter ones, yeah, they're going to be playing with this system. Yeah, if they know their school is doing this sort of shit, they're going to deliberately start and using off- offensive keywords but, but on a regular basis, just to deliberately set off, you know, investigations just well, to get attention. Do I understand them monitoring anything that's on their network in the school? Yes, yes, I do. I understand that because you know what, kids fucking cheat. It's what mm-hmm. they do. <laughs> they they cheat. Um. 
I understand them monitoring the traffic on their Wi-Fi, okay, or monitoring the, the you know what, if, if they want to set up a fucking stingray inside the school that, that broadcasts a 50-feet radius outside of the building, Jan, you know what, I honestly, I don't know if I'm so much against that because it is the school's job to monitor what is going on in their building. And a lot of these technology waivers, um, for your kid to take their computer or their cell phone into onto the school property, they have to sign a technology waiver that says exactly what the school is going to do. Okay? Well, yeah, also, but you know, they'll, they'll only allow connection to their internet. School if, is yeah. none of your fucking business. Yeah. It's one thing for you to tell my kid that my kid can't wear... Um, a Barrett 50 Cal shirt that he absolutely loves inside your building because it goes against your safety policy or what fucking ever because, yeah, he might hurt somebody wearing a damn T-shirt. Triggering. It's triggering. But for you to, for you to monitor my kid's social media account and say, oh, that student has pictures with weapons. Well, uh, fuck you. Of course he does. We hunt. He's also got a picture of him with a rifle and a dead fucking deer. Um, you know why? Because we eat the deer. Um, but I, oh, all this f overreaching. And, and you know where the, all the overreaching comes from? All of this overreach comes from parents not parenting. Do your damn job as a parent. Monitor your freaking kid. That's your job. It's not the school's job. Not according to some people on TV. It no. takes a village. Everybody's responsible for children. This is the natural result of such thinking. This is why you end up with people getting CPS called because their kids are playing in their fucking yard, which is also absolutely ridiculous. I, you know what? I think every week I'm, I'm going to put a post up in, in, in here, especially for you from Free Range Kids, and, and I'm going to let you read it. God, Jan, you do this just to piss me off. <laughs> I didn't do this to piss you off. I did it to prove a point. Schools are turning into little prisons for kids. Well, I, I, also, I, I also have one comment about this sort of thing. Okay. Yeah, the type of school I went to, right, if, if the internet and social media had been around when I was in school, do you know the last thing that I let kids be able to do in my school would be access things like Facebook and Instagram <laughs> while they were at school? Teachers! <laughs> teachers should not be on social media during school hours. Yeah. Students should not be on social media during school hours. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Well, it's yeah. not during lunch, one well, of them are there to do. During lunch, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, yeah but, was, but, but it should be strictly controlled, as you say, during lunch videos and it's easy to do unless the kid's a hacker you can quite <laughs> easily block websites from your yeah. uh, network connection i mean and you've got a lot of shit now okay i i found myself recently telling a parent that you need you i just let that go because it's just one kid talking shit to another kid yeah um, you know, back when, when back, back in the day when we used to have one-room schoolhouses. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say, I'm going to kill you for that? 
And they didn't mean that they were going to go kill someone. Yeah. They meant now, they're going to meet you at the corner after school and you guys are going to have a throwdown. Mm-hmm. No guns, no knives, no whatever. What, what did my grandmother, oh, my grandmother's word, fisticuffs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I used to laugh when my grandmother used that word. But I mean, and, but that's what it was. Right. And they have this, they have this, all this, this fucked up bullshit now, this overreach of schools, that it's, it's pathetic. Mm-hmm. If, if your kid, and, and I am not, you know, I, I think, I asked a question in the Kasai group the other day about how many states had laws against kids in possession of tobacco products. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of states have, have laws that say it's illegal for a minor to purchase tobacco products. But there's a bunch of them that that's as far as it goes. Kid gets caught smoking. There's nothing. You, there's no law against them smoking. It's, there's a law against them buying tobacco products. But mm-hmm. anyway, so but as far, back to this overreach thing. If if your kid leaves school and does something wrong before they get home, they can be suspended from school for that. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. What? Whoa! Wait. Time out. Back up. What? What? So, if my kid... But but it only goes as far as if they screw up. Okay? So, if, if my kid walks out of the school and falls and breaks his leg on the way home from school, that's not the school's responsibility. But yet, they can punish my kid for something he does on the same square foot of sidewalk? No. No, 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 no. This is not how this shit should work. At all. And, and I am not one of them parents that goes easy on my kids either. Mm-hmm. My kids fuck up at school. The worst possible thing for my kid about that screw up is having to come home and tell his parents what he did. So, because I take my job as a parent seriously. It is my job to parent my kids. Mm-hmm. Not the schools. I agree. It, it's not, generally speaking, something that should be done. And, and these companies monitoring my kids' social media accounts? How the hell do I know that these people aren't employing pervs? How's that one for a wrench in the, in the works? Because it, all of these companies that these schools subcontract this work out to, do these companies and their employees have to go through the same state and federal background searches as, say, my son-in-law had to go through to be a junior little league coach? Fucking very, very doubtful people. So when your school says that they're employing these freaking places, start having a shit fit and go in and find out you want to see the background searches or the you want to see the certifications where these people were searched and found not to be some kind of a freak that you don't want looking at your kid's shit. Not actual shit. <laughs> you don't know. Uh, yeah. Yes. Volunteers. And here's no, Jan, I just got to tell you because I happen to have one right here in my hand. Uh, the Pennsylvania State Police, you have to go get a response for a criminal record to be a volunteer baseball coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, of course you do. 
you're dealing with children. This response well, I mean, based a comprehensive a comparison of data provided by the requester against information contained in the files of the Pennsylvania State Police Central Repository only. Please confirm the identifiers provided. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I promise you, people, the places that your schools have monitoring your children without your consent or knowledge probably don't have to have these. Probably Just not. I've got something. I've got a similar sort of document. I have been background checked because when I went to do nursing, it's compulsory these days. Mm -hmm. And then it got renewed when I briefly worked as a cleaner in a care home. Children in um, vulnerable um, groups um, is what it covers. So yeah, all teachers, people working in schools, nurses carers, you know, everyone in the UK who works with any vulnerable group has to have a background check. But as you say, yeah, third party companies, yeah. I mean, I don't obviously it's not the case in the US, but over here, yeah, a third party company would have to certify all its staff. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they were found that they had staff who weren't certified, uh, yeah, the get in a lot of trouble um, yeah I mean it has happened you know somebody yeah. you know a school has employed some guy to drive a minibus for a school outing and he's not been properly vetted so, you know schools oh, yeah. have been schools have been fined for that over here oh no the state of Pennsylvania you have to uh, anyone driving a school bus has to be vetted yeah, it's it's the same over here. It's the same in most uh, countries. These well, Western countries anyway. Um, yeah, you have to you have to have your nice clear certificate. Of course, that's still not a guarantee. That only means you've not been caught doing anything dodgy up to that point. <laughs> just so as just a point. I apologize to anybody listening on the replay that I got so asked up and irate, but it it really does. It, it drives me absolutely, absolutely insane. And if you think that your school district doesn't have a bunch of fucked up shit going on, run for school board, guys. Go sit on your kids' school board. I'm just so, saying. I mean, the one that always gets me is when schools mention having security staff. <laughs> You're like, yeah, school never used to have to have, have, to have security staff. staff. What the hell? Yeah, no shit. I, I never, you know, when I went to school in the big city, and we never had security. You know, we had an open campus. We were right off, right off the campus where Brown University is. And, you know, you could come and go as you please. They treated you like an adult. If you had classes, you had to take them. If not, you had to suffer the consequences for it. You know, but you had free periods and stuff where you could go hang out, go eat off campus. It, it was, they gave you a remarkable amount of freedom that kids don't have today. Yeah, when, they didn't when, when, I was a, when I was a senior in the school I was at, uh, if you didn't have lessons, uh, you'd sign yourself out and go home. Oh yeah, we were never allowed to do that here. Because, yeah, I mean, the way the education used to be set up here, 
I was only doing five subjects in my second last year and three subjects in my last year. So funnily enough, that doesn't fill up a whole week's timetable. <laughs> no. So the school quite sensibly was like, well, we don't want them all hanging around not doing anything. And knew that there's no way you can force kids to, oh, you have 12 hours of free periods through the week. We must force <laughs> you to study on premises. No. no study is going to get done. No. So they're just like, you can sign yourself out and go home. Well, you know, I I thrived in that environment. I was done with high school by, God, before my 17th birthday. I had all, my last, my last quarter, I had every credit but one. That was, that was an easy class. <laughs> one and done. Um, you know, and I was done. Yeah, I was, you know, out the full-time job market at that point. So it was just, it was an interesting experiment in how you treat people. You treat them like infants or criminals, they're going to act like infants or criminals. You treat people like adults, they're going to act like fucking adults. It's just the way of the world. And I don't like what these schools are doing. And and this is where I differ in it from Jeannie. I think they're turning kids, they're making kids get used to being monitored all the time. They're turning it into a panopticon, all of society. Well, and they wonder why kids don't feel safe nowadays. It's because every minute, every fucking day, you tell them that the big evil world is out to get them. Yeah, state-sponsored paranoia. Yay. <laughs> quit, quit raising a bunch of fucking crybabies. You know what's pretty sad? I, did, did anybody see the Reason Magazine piece with the video from that asshole Michael Bloomberg? You know, the, na the official nanny himself. No. Okay, I'm going to guess no is the correct answer to that. Um, they had just a portion of his address to a college graduation class. And, you know, he talked about health and safety and stuff, and then he went off on them for being triggered and not acting like adults and not wanting to be exposed to different opinions and different thoughts and said that it was unhealthy. And it was, they were not going to grow up as healthy people. And half the audience like flipped the hell out. They felt triggered at his response. He, that fucker is an asshole and he wants to control your life. And yet he's saying things like that. I mean, that kind of kills me, but he wasn't wrong. Well, yeah, if, if he tried that shit over, over in one of the UK establishments, he, he, he would have left with injuries. Because things would have been thrown. <laughs> well, and I mean, security would have been very annoyed at him. <laughs> right, but what I'm saying is, you know, we're talking about... I tell you, I, I think you told me uh, about kids going into the military and feeling triggered and, and needing to go hang out in their bunks until they weren't upset anymore. No. Um... Uh, you know, when my grandfather was in his 20s, he was facing live fire from the Nazis. Um, and 
when my father was in his 20s, he was a hell of a shot, such a good shot, that he was a Marine. And he did it for years and years and years. These are the people I, I think of as men. Um, and they raised me to be really strong as a woman. And I think I really am strong as a woman. I can withstand a lot of criticism and everything else. I can withstand other viewpoints. I can't imagine how hard life is going to be for people who can't stand to hear other points of view. Or they can't stand to be around something upsetting. Holy fuck. Well, a good indication of what it's going to be like is... <laughs> When you watch some of Gordon Ramsay's stuff on TV, where he just loses it and starts laying into somebody. Right. And I'm talking about his US show. It, mm -hmm. it doesn't have quite the same effect in the UK. Um, but, you know, he lays into somebody and they're like, You can't talk to me like that. <laughs> and it's like, He is, and he's not going to stop. <laughs> it's like. Uh, but it's just the reaction he got. That's one reason why he's been so popular in the US, because people are like, can't believe that he speaks to people like that. It's like, yeah, it's because he's an adult, and he mm -hmm. thinks he's talking to other adults. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the problem. A lot of these people that allowed their kids to be raised by schools and not by them are turning into that kind of person. Yeah. What is society going to be like in 10 years? What are their kids going to be like? Oh, my God. Hey, Jeannie. Uh -huh. <laughs> what do you think that'll be like? A fucking disaster. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, that was a happy note to end things on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <sighs> but Lucy, no, you're... Lucy kids and overreaching schools. That's kind of society in a nutshell. We'll see kids in overreaching schools or treat children like an adult and see what happens. I know um, there was an article, it wasn't the Daily Mail, it was one of your good papers, The Guardian, about the school Tilda Swinson runs for kids over there generally. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's amazing. And those kids are bright as hell. Now, they don't do traditional schoolwork. They kind of they kind of follow the unschooling thing, you yeah. know. Yeah, it's the free range kids type thing. And it's awesome. Basically, and start the kids... day asking the kids what they want to do, mm. within yeah. strict limits, obviously. Um, yeah. But it's still really amazing the diverse ideas about education, and the UK has got a lot of it right. With you know, you only learn stuff for fifteen minutes, so fifteen minutes at a break. 15 well, minutes and a break. I can't remember the name of it, but there's uh, they did a TV program over here. Mm -hmm. It was an experiment, basically. Mm -hmm. um, they got a bunch of the the worst behaving kids they could find. Okay. And instead of putting them in... It was a strict system, but instead of doing the, the, the old-fashioned come down on them with a ton of bricks kind of thing, mm -hmm. that hadn't worked. Because <laughs> if it's a, a lot of kids, that is never going to work. Right. So instead, they had they put them with uh, this teacher, and he was an award. He's an award-winning teacher. You know, he's won he's won many awards, and he uses alternative methods for teaching. So they stuck these kids with him, 
Mm-hmm. And yet, at the end, it, it was like a three-month course. They all improved. <laughs> because just... this one one size fits all thing they do with schools now <laughs> doesn't work. Because <laughs> just... all kids are not the same. Yep. Um, because yeah, it isn't. Legislators would have you believe it's not an. Everyone's the same system. No, it's not. Yeah, they go, oh no, we tailor, we, we have tailored plans for individual <laughs> students and blah, blah, blah. So you're seriously telling me that teacher. I mean, there's a comedian over here, um, uh, Greg Davies. He's an ex-teacher. And he said it in one of his comedy shows. He's like, you're supposed to have a lesson plan and each class has got to have its own plan and blah, blah, blah. And he says, I couldn't be bothered doing all that. I had one lesson plan. Everybody got the same one. And he said that. <laughs> like, I'm an ex-teacher. I'm telling you, this is what happens. You know. It's, yeah. So when they say, "Oh, it's not an," you know, you know, we, we aren't trying to make you know, treat everyone the same. We try and tailor it. It's like, oh, you know, nobody left behind. It's like, <laughs> no, it, that's not what, how it's working out. No, it's not. And you can't and treat I... kids that way. No, I I kind of wonder, you know, we've talked about how you, you kind of have to have a system that's kind of balanced. We've talked about what happens to people. Um, I've talked about the economic realities of, of what happens when government and corporations band together and everything kind of runs wild. Yeah. Um, well, uh, Confessions of an Economic that. Hitman is yeah. a really great book. I, I highly recommend reading it. Um, and there are theories about things called disaster capitalism. If you haven't heard of them, look them up. Um, you might want to read some stuff by Naomi Klein. Just because I don't subscribe to all theories doesn't mean that I don't read all things because I want to give everybody a val- balanced view. Um, and in some ways, she's really right. You, you have to have a system that's balanced because no corporation is ever going to allow you to make enough money to walk away from them or to make enough money to buy their products if they have a say in doing it. So the left has actually done a lot as far as labor and making conditions humane for workers. And I understand that. Um, And I applaud them for it. It's made my life um, better because the idea of my work being allowed to abuse me more than it does scares the shit out of me. Um, when you don't have a mixed system and you make a move like the UK is making towards the academy-based thing that's going to be sponsored by corporations, what do you think those children are going to learn, Barry? Not a lot. Yeah, exactly. How to be a good, docile worker and banally accept what they're given. Yeah, it's, um, funnily enough, you you read the stories, yeah, they're probably not going to get away with it. Uh, they should never get away with it. I mean, yeah, if it, you're going to it's make... It's looking like the same will happen with the teaching profession as is currently happening with the junior doctors, if they keep pushing for the academies thing. They're going to have nobody to teach in their academies. <laughs> no, you and know, they'll have some... no doctors in the hospitals. And... Some changes are not for the better, and it's yeah. hard to... Com- 
big governments like big business, the bigger they get, the fucking dumber they get, and the worse decisions they make. I'm for keeping government small, but I, I'm also in a way for keeping government. I never thought I would say that. But the smaller it is, the more control you have over it. When it gets as large as it has in your country and in mine, it's like an unstoppable monster. I, God, I can't wait for that fucker to run out of gas. The unstoppable monster. Just stop. Just stop. Let's figure out what we're doing from here, I guess. Um, and wow, it's quarter of nine. This is going to be one of the longest shows we've ever done. Um, any last thoughts, Jeannie? Oh, sorry, I had to unmute my microphone. <laughs> <laughs> nope, I'm, I'm, I'm all good. I'm very all less, parents, very less. Parents, parent, do your fucking job. Do your fucking job. Know your job. Do your job. Good, Perry. Last thoughts. Yellow cake. Yellow cake. Ah, <laughs> uh, encryption and yellow cake. What a delicious dinner. Oh, and going back to something that was said earlier, Earth Mover tarps. Yeah. <laughs> Earth glance. Yeah. Oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> um. So anybody who's actually going to go for that horrible study, good luck. Um. Hopefully they learn something that's actually useful. Hopefully you get a decent amount of money and you don't get treated like yeah. that. Or Make sure you get paid up front. Yeah, asked to fix Stan's car. Um, and I guess that's it. It's now quarter of nine, so it's just under three hours, which is good, because if it hits the three-hour mark, it trips everything to shut off. So I guess uh, Muppets and Advert. Why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Ammoseek.com. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs>